Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hi, it's Susan. I think I must be too much of an optimist because it always surprises me when life gets in the way of the best intentions. We had intended this to be an episode where Beck and I talk about our summer vacation, where we talk about our trip to London, all the history we saw there, and the people that we were able to see all those great places with, friends just like you from the other side of the mic. However, in addition to some very lovely souvenirs, we brought COVID back with us. While I have recuperated, Beckett is still in the throes of the worst of the COVID symptoms. There's absolutely no way that she could sit and talk into a microphone for the amount of time it would take us to record that episode. So we're putting that one on the shelf for next time. And what we've done instead is taken all of our coverage of the wives of Henry VIII, six women that we saw parts of their lives on our trip. We talked about a lot. We even saw six, the musical. We took all of those episodes, cleaned up the audio as best we could. This is from way back in our early days and put them into this one mega episode. So Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr all together on this one episode. It is kind of long, but if you think of it like an audiobook, we've broken it into chapters. So it's actually a very short audiobook. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that all of you are healthy. And of course, I know that I speak for all of you when I say, Beckett, please get well soon. Rest, do what you must, and we'll be waiting. And now, on with the show. Chapter 1, Catherine of Aragon. And here's your 30-second summary. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Or is it Saint, Witch, Mommy, Sister, Party, and Lucky? The end. Let's talk about Catherine of Aragon. Catherine was born uh, December 16th, 1485. Her parents were King Ferdinand of Aragon and his wife, Queen Isabella. Wait, have you heard of them before? They're, they're best known for two things. Ferdinand and Isabella are known for backing Columbus's voyage to the New World, and they're also known for the Spanish Inquisition. It was bad. But their story is actually kind of interesting. We'll just take a couple minutes before we get into the life of Catherine, because it kind of sets the stage for how she was raised. Spain was kind of like we talked before about Germany being a bunch of little countries that made up one country the way we think of it. Spain was the same way at the time, and Ferdinand and his family were over one part, and Isabella and her family were over another part, which was larger, yes? Mama's <laughs> portion was a lot bigger yeah, and a lot more full of money. And she's basically controlled most of her life by her brother, who is the king. Um, and he wanted certain marriages for her for political gain, as was the way of the time. And she kind of refused them. And behind his back, they, they set up this arranged marriage between her and Ferdinand, and she snuck out of the castle. They they got married in secret, and it was her second cousin. That's not so uncommon. Second no. cousin? Hey, they're practically strangers I know. these times. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So now we have these two powers that have joined together, and they are joint rulers. They're known as the Catholic monarchs. Isabella was over Castile, and Ferdinand was over Aragon. They took their children on campaign everywhere. Now, on campaign sounds lovely, but basically what they were trying to do is to expel the Moors, M-O-O-R-S, i.e., the Muslims, out of Spain. Right. 
um, southern Spain had been occupied by the Moors for a long time. So they were going to go ahead and get rid of them. And they're taking over the territories. So they take the kids on tour. There's five children. This is not even playing either, because yeah. seriously, their tents were set on fire. And um, Juana, one of the daughters, was in the tent at the time and had to be pulled out and rescued. This is not like they're in a safe place remote from the fighting all the time. Right. Sometimes they were. And had they just taken over a castle, they had some luxurious times in there, being dressed by the servants of the castle, being wrapped in luxurious cloths and drenched with rose water, listening to the fountains. I mean, it could be a lovely experience. Which is probably made even more lovely by the non-lovely times that they spent out in the wilderness. Yeah, so she knew how to camp, but camping with cloth of gold tents is not the same. No. It's like those safaris that you can go on uh-huh. where you have a butler that wears white gloves that serves you things and you're in your tent. Nice. Whatever you call it. Is that, that your idea of camping? I'm not so much. I don't know. Camping. My heels would stink in the sand. I know. My heels would stink in the mud. That's no good at all. But, um... Catherine was descended from an Englishman named John of Gaunt, a famous redhead. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Catherine, if you're picturing the lady, Maria Doyle Kennedy, that plays Catherine of Aragon in The Tudors. Dark-eyed, olive skin. No, that is not what she looked like. Catherine was actually a ginger. She had reddish blonde hair and blue eyes and fair skin. And she was pretty little. She looked more like Dakota Fanning than Catherine Zeta-Jones. That's very good. Yes. Could you just for a second talk about the Tudors? I think Maria Doyle Kennedy's, the way she carried herself in that was very, probably pretty accurate. So ever since little Catherine was three years old, since just when she could talk and walk and know herself, she had known that one day she'd go across to a land called England and she would marry a boy named Arthur and become eventually the Queen of England. So not only was she an infanta of Spain, she was to be thinking of herself as the Princess of Wales from a very, very young age. So for her whole life, this is what she was going to, she knew she was going to do that. And this is in her makeup. It's just a fact, like, oh, this is the color of my hair, Mm -hmm. these are the names of my sisters, and one day I will be Queen of England. Just a fact. (laughs) Yeah. No more special or unspecial than anything else. That's true. I wonder if Catherine, current future Queen of England, thought that. I'm guessing no. <laughs> no. Uh, but the whole family, Isabella and Ferdinand's children, were all going to be married off to into royal political marriages. It was just the way things were done. To that effect, the parents gave their children a grand and thorough education. I mean, even the girls. There's four girls and a boy. Latin, history, law, law, let me say that again, religion. <laughs> well, actually, let's go back to that. It's civil law and church law they were given education in. It wasn't just... I'm just saying, later, people knew what they were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> is all I'm saying. Um, and interestingly enough, Isabella had a thing for Arthurian romances of the days of King Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere. King Arthur was the namesake of Prince Arthur. Who her daughter was going to marry. Mm-hmm. Interestingly. Well, she, what, she didn't learn English. Uh, isn't that weird? <laughs> like, she knows where she's going. She knows the language of the country. But that is not, I mean, she's learning French and Latin, which he was also learning the Latin at that point. So that's how they communicated. But still, it was like, okay, I guess she'll pick it up when she gets there. I thought that, yeah, that's a very big hole. And it's also pretty common mm-hmm. in our stories that we're talking about princesses 
don't learn foreign language and you're thinking someday she's going, right? I mean, can we not arm her for the battle? (laughs) Oh, well. But also, interestingly, they were taught what I would call very housewifely skills. Uh Baking. Why would a future queen of England need to learn how to cook? Spinning and weaving. Yeah, sewing. She made all of her husband's shirts. So I thought that was a very, very well-rounded Education. And Arthur and Catherine would correspond in letters written in Latin. I mean, they weren't particularly romantic or flowery, and they were more like a lesson that they were learning. You know, let's write this letter. Oh, well, who should we send it to? Well, let's send it to your pen pal in Spain. (laughs) So. Now, um, unlike in England, where basically the second people were born, they were given their own establishment and sent away, Ferdinand and Isabella's children were with them. So long. Daily they saw them. (laughs) Daily. They were very involved in their education. And I can only imagine that when a daughter leaves to go get married, it's harder to say goodbye to someone you've been with every day their whole life than, oh, this one girl who I saw when I gave birth to her 12 years ago is going to get married on paper to some other guy on paper. So she's just going to live in a different distant place. That seems really easy to me. Catherine was the last to go. And she left Granada. Which, can I please talk about Granada? Please. I love this story. Granada was a city that they had conquered and and retaken, and it was one of the sites of some of her fondest childhood memories. You know, the the tinkling fountains and the calmness of the court. And And this was one of the nice places that they took This was one of the very nice places. And um, when princesses come to a foreign country, they are asked to have a badge, like like a brand... Like a brand identity, a logo. logo. Um, And she chose as hers the pomegranate, or as it is in Spanish, the granada, to remind her of her happy days there. And interestingly, here's a note for English speakers. (laughs) The word grenade, think about what a grenade looks like, Mm -hmm. is granada also, and it means pomegranate. (laughs) So she left granada in May. And it took her three months of hot and dusty travel to get from Granada to her ship. Three months. Yay. Well, and, you know, it's not just her. It's, I mean, you imagine, like, it's her on a horse. How long could that take? No, this is a whole entourage. You know, hundreds of people had to accompany her. It had to be a matter of state. It was a matter of pride to send her off well. But they had to turn back due to storms once they had finally embarked, and she did not set foot on English soil until October 2nd, months and months after she set off, and we complain about a two-hour delay in the airport. (laughs) But she spent her whole life on the road, so to speak, so I guess maybe that was just another leg of her journey. You know. So she proceeded to London slowly. Again, pageantry is the key. Pageantry is the key. People in every town would rush out to see their future queen. Towns would put up every kind of festival and best foot forward to welcome her. She had 50 ladies with her. They had slaves with them, too. Oh. Moorish slave girls yeah. they had. And they traveled with a pack of laundresses. As you would, I suppose. Saying, when can I travel with a pack of laundresses? I, I mean, besides myself, of course. I know. Yeah. And the Spanish king and queen had had a condition that Henry VII and his son not see her before the wedding. It was not done. She was not to be seen by these men of her new family. And Grandpa King, what? What's wrong with her? And he took off and by himself 
uh, and went and basically busted into her tent and demanded to see her. And everybody's like, no, 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 it is not possible. No, no, no. And he goes, well, you tell her to come out or I will go in there and see her in her bed. It won't be the first time I've seen a girl in her bed. <laughs> you need to tell her to come out right now. And he like broke protocol and it was in her face and she handled it well, I think. I mean, she handled it well. She came out and he was very relieved that she was quite beautiful. Uh-huh. Didn't apologize no, for his no. behavior. In fact, he went and got his son who was back on the road a bit and said, okay, that's right. let's go ahead. And they had, you know, a lovely feast and everything. And it had to have rattled her, but she never showed it. And that's uh, her whole life. She was like that. Things would rattle her and she would keep it all inside and comport herself as a future queen. And that's how she'd been brought up. Well, I was going to say she was brought up and during a very tumultuous time. So being level headed in the face of that type of calamity is something that was, she learned at a very young age from her mom who also did the same thing. So it's going to serve you well, Catherine. Well, and she was kind of lucky in that she got to marry a prince of her own age and wasn't married to someone 30 or 40 years older than her for political reasons. He was intelligent. He was trained in management. He'd been given, you know, he was the Prince of Wales, which meant you live in Wales and you run that area as your training. Right. On the job training, that's right. really awesome. Like she was raised knowing that she would be the queen of England someday. He was raised knowing he would be the king. Yeah, and he was kind, and it could so easily not have all gone that way. By the way, oh yeah, I mean, she could have been married to a stinking lecherous psycho, but she wasn't. Yeah, so that was good. <laughs> Yes. So size of relief all around. She thought his appearance was nice. He thought her appearance was nice. They were young people together. The ceremonial entry into London was exotic as possible. They made it, I mean, they dressed in full Spanish dress. Exotique. Dripping veils everywhere. And she rode a mule into town rather than take a carriage like everyone expected. She rode a mule into town. All the side saddles faced the wrong direction. What is happening? You know, they just made it all just a spectacle. Mm-hmm. Her entry into the city was something to behold. And guess who escorted her across London Bridge? Who? Prince Henry, age 10. Yeah. Given that big responsibility. That is a big responsibility. He was the royal representative for her trip across London Bridge. Little did they know that one day, that little boy who was so happy to see her and called her dearest sister would one day be her husband. I wish I was marrying you. (laughs) There was a very cute scene. There is a fictional book, fictional, I'm going to add again, uh, historical fiction called The Constant Princess. And the meeting of little Prince Henry and his new sister mm-hmm. was adorable. He's so cute and he's so excited to be trusted with this great responsibility. Because uh-huh. you know those second sons. The second sons are the ones that are jolly and... There's no pressure. They're not... Yeah, he was not going to grow up to be the king of England. Uh-huh. He was going to grow up to work in a church. Yeah, there was no expectation. He had all the advantages of having money thrown at him and a bigger advantage... He got to stay home with his sisters and his mother and have a family life, mm-hmm. whereas his brother got sent away to manage his kingdom. So he's had, you know, women all around him that were so charmed by his tactics of, mm-hmm. you know, his capering about of being the cute little boy. And he was a happy little dude at this point. So happy little dude carefully brings his future sister-in-law yes. so to she, her wedded day. Yes. And on November 15th, she was married in white 
which was not traditional at the time, no. but just she happened to choose. It was your best dress. You would choose your best look, right. basically. So after much feasting and dancing, etc., the couple were publicly put to bed together. <sighs> Can you imagine? No, I can't. Thanks for coming. Thanks for the presents. Bye-bye. And then privacy. But, I mean, we saw it with Marie Antoinette. Yeah. It's a big party. So at least they left the room, you know, at last. Yeah. But after such a long day, I mean, who knows? Who knows what happened? Yeah, what happened? We can uh, we can say, okay, that day probably, you know, it's possible it didn't. Nothing happened. Yeah. They're both teenagers, and they're exhausted, and this all the months of preparation, the life of preparation, it was finally done. Let's sleep. Okay, we can accept that. Yeah, and so, you know, I can see that, but, you know, they're both, you know, 16-ish. They're both attracted to each other. They knew what was expected of them. This princess traveled with a christening robe, for God's sake. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. I can understand the first night. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe the second. Yeah, yeah. And he came out the next day, Mr. Boasty McBoasterson, mm-hmm. and, whoa, it's thirsty work having a wife. Uh, I have been in the midst of Spain, he said. Vomit sound here. Insert vomit sound. So, uh, yeah. It sounds so like a teenager today, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it totally does. Like, it's a good business having a wife, dude. Um, You know, so the common sense would dictate it probably wasn't much of a problem afterwards. Uh, You know, whatever. So, at this point, they need to pack up their gear and head off to home. They need to go to their new house, which is the government seat of the Prince of Wales. (laughs) Their castle. Ludlow Castle in Wales. It was a bustling little market town. It was no, it was no London palace, certainly. But, um, author Philippa Gregory, um, has jokingly said, there's nothing else to do in Wales at that time of year. So if they weren't in bed together, I would be very surprised. Yes. But, um, the thing is, in this big castle, Arthur had cozy little rooms heated with big fireplaces. It was probably a very comfortable place to be. Castles are not no. typically very comfortable. But the, I can imagine those little rooms with the big roaring fireplace and they're cozy together and they both like to read and it seems yeah, like it would be nice. I, yeah, they're from similar background. I mean, different cultures. But similar educational backgrounds, mm-hmm. and they probably had a lot to talk about, and that would attract them together. Mm-hmm. You think? And his gentleman of the chamber constantly referred to collecting him in his nightgown. We don't know what they were doing. We know what Catherine claims later they weren't doing. All came crashing down. This happy scene. Only a few months later, yeah. five months later. Within, yeah, within six months of their marriage, all of a sudden they're both sick. There's a illness that's going around called the sweating sickness they both come down with it although she survives it starts with cold shivers and then severe body ache followed by massive sweating and delirium and exhaustion if you survive the first 24 hours you might survive but you go fast it's like outbreak remember that movie (laughs) outbreak it's fast how terrifying to know it's around though I know. And then also to have no idea. I mean, germ theory was, germ theory was non-existent. So just imagine like the vapors are in the air and they're around you and is it going to get you? And just like the terror must have been horrible. Yeah. And it also could be, bizarrely, they say that that could be a fluke that they were both sick and that he died of testicular cancer. Well, if he did have testicular cancer, that would explain they're not consummating. So it's still up in the air. Yeah. All that. Yeah, it's a big mystery. But But it all ended up the same way. Yeah. So Catherine was a widow, and her family and his family immediately began making plans for shifting her marriage to the second son, Henry. It was, you know, 
common sense. It occurred to everyone. Well, there's another one. Let's just bump down. It needed a dispensation because technically, if you marry someone, you are their full relative. Like, right. So, so Henry she was Henry's sister mm-hmm. at this point. Although that was paperwork. Yeah. Because Catherine's own sisters, two of them had been married to the same man, and after both of them died, he I, married his niece. Yeah. So the Pope was gonna rubber stamp it, it's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's cool. I know this guy. It'll be fine. But they did keep her in seclusion for almost a month to see if she was pregnant. They didn't name yeah. Prince Henry the Prince of Wales right away because if Catherine had a son, he took precedence over Prince mm-hmm. Henry. Right. But she didn't. Mm-mm. Because she claimed they didn't. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's right. There was a battle of wills between Catherine's parents and Henry the Seventh. Was this relationship consummated? Well, then she needs to get her widow's money now, mm-hmm. and she needs to come back home. And end of story. Give her her money. And Henry the Seventh is kind of uh, tight with the coin. Yeah, he's not letting money go out. One of the authors I read said that he was on a first name basis with every coin in his treasury. <laughs> That's funny. So she, so is she the Dowager Princess of Wales, or was she just never technically married? Now, Catherine herself claimed she was still a virgin, and so did her scary chaperone lady, um, Donna Elvira. I just think that's interesting because that was totally against her family's interest to claim that. So why would she, like, why would she claim it if it wasn't true? They wanted her to be a widow. Yes. Oh, I see. A a legitimate widow. And she claimed she was not because she was never really married to Prince Arthur, Hmm. even back then. But gosh, two teenagers in bed for six months. Again, um, quoting author Philippa Gregory, who's known for historical fiction, but she says that she believes that this woman, this good, honest woman, told one massive whopper of a lie in her whole life, and that was it. Hmm. And then she had to keep it. One lie. Kids, don't lie. See what happens? You could end up married to Henry VIII. (laughs) So they ended up, common sense prevailed, and they bound her to Henry VIII. He was still underage, and she was not. Now, it's very common for an underage marriage, once it gets to the point where you're of age, you can repudiate it if you want, saying, well, this was contracted without my consent. Right. So Henry was still underage. He had a backseas plan, and she did not. No. She had this terrible uncertainty. Not only terrible uncertainty, but not the most great of living conditions, Mm -mm. because Henry VII is not forking out the dough for her right now Mm -mm. at all. So she's living, even though she's titled, she's having to borrow money to pay for her bills. She's borrowing money from the Spanish ambassador. And it's even worse. Her mother died, and with it, the majority of her father's fortune went into a brother-in-law's hands, like out of her father's control, kind of. Mm -hmm. And his ability to pay for her was very, very far down, too. And so nobody wanted to pay for her. Everyone's like, no, that's yours. No, your responsibility. No, your responsibility. So she basically went from royal residence to royal residence, living in whatever apartments were available. Sleeping on couches all across England. Yeah, basically couch surfing. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, so toward the end of this period, which lasted for seven years. Yeah, seven years she's living like this. Toward the end, Henry VII even mainly said he had no responsibility to feed her. He regarded it as alms for the poor to feed her. Nice. And she had care of these dependents that needed her. She had a very big responsibility to take care of people, and she just couldn't 
She was scrabbling. Yeah. I can understand her knowing how to live from place to place because that's how she was raised. Mm -hmm. But the hardship of having to pay her bills wasn't mm-hmm. something she was raised having to do, so. And here she is. Think about how bad this is. Since three, she's known she's going to be the queen of England. And now here she is at 24 in this horrible situation. And finally, I think she just cracked. She had all her stuff packed, and she was just going to go back to Spain and take, try her luck at home. Just this, go. It's got to be better than huh. At least it's warmer. <laughs> and then, saved by the bell, Henry the Seventh died. Henry VIII is now next in line, and he is king. And one of his first acts is to marry her. Now, why did he marry her? Was it obligation? Was it duty? Was it politics? Was it love? He'd known her for a very long time. It could have been any of those things, and we would just have to speculate. But they did, according to things that I saw, they did seem like they loved each other early on in their marriage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and he was truly admiring of her. I mean, they're probably both in love, and he got to be the hero. Think about how he rescued his friend and, Mm -hmm. you know, her proximity to these royal children, because she's always, like, basically having to live wherever they live just to save money. She's been around Henry a long time, and then their official betrothal made it okay for them to be together a lot. Just hanging out. Just being friends. Right. I really do think it was a love relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, he could. there was other women that he could have married that he would have gained more politically. He had a backseat plan, like you said. Yeah, he yeah. could have gotten out of it, but yeah. he didn't. The I coronation decided. was shortly afterward, and if I were to guess, just from reading these descriptions, the purpose of this coronation was to spend as much of Henry VII's dragon horde of money <laughs> as they could possibly throw at it. I mean, jewels, thousands of yards of velvet, even horses were dripping with, like, let's call it expense. Okay. <laughs> when a horse has jeweled coats yeah. on. Yeah. You know. It's a big party. It is a big party. And even better, if you were to call Central Casting and go, hey, um, I need an attractive young king and queen. Can you just send me some models? These are who would you would get. Yeah. <laughs> you would get this really tall, red, gold-haired, muscle agility man. Right, because at this point, Henry's got quite the physique. He's mm-hmm. he's a good-looking guy. Even dudes that hate him said he was the handsomest prince in Christendom. So, and yeah. she's beautiful. And she is beautiful. And they're fair-haired, and I can just imagine the sunlight bouncing off their jewels and their golden hair. Yeah. Pretty couple. I would definitely say that Catherine's ramen noodle and mac and cheese days are over. <laughs> Yay! So to speak. Yeah. Or what would it be at that time? Like, gruel and manchet bread or something? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, I don't know, but you know what? It crossed my mind. I'm like, I wonder what they're eating. I wish somebody could get a hold of this video. You guys would love it. It's the Super Sizers Go Elizabethan. And I caught it on the cooking channel on my DVR. But that doesn't give you a reliable way to find it. It is this, unless you come to Beckett's house. Unless you come to my house. Find it on her DVR. But yeah, they, uh, I'm not sure they actually vomited, but they did get tansy poisoning at one point. But it's this restaurant critic and a comedian, and they dress and eat mm-hmm. from actual menus of the day. And one of them is Elizabethan, which is close enough to this period yeah. that, you know, that you can really see what they were eating. Must find. Because that's the BBC, right? It is. Yeah. It was the BBC, yeah. And they started out, they have an Edwardian one. They have Mm -hmm. one um, based on Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. They have one from the 1950s. I mean, it's so interesting. And all of them would go along with our podcast. Come on, Cookie Channel and BBC, make them available on Netflix. 
Although her years of struggle were over, I think Queen Catherine never really forgot that seven years of struggle and fear, I kind of, that she had just been through. She did keep it all inside. It strengthened her religion to no end, that oh. period of her life. And, you know, biblically, periods of time like this are things that, as a Christian, would strengthen you. Huh. Strengthen your faith. I mean, it's, and Jesus went out in the desert for 40 days, you know. There's, biblically, it's there, so... So maybe she thought so it was maybe a purposeful- she thought exactly this is God isn't letting me do something that I can't handle because he has given me these challenges he has great faith in me Wow, okay. See, there you go. That's it. <laughs> well, she had all that inside. Outside it was masks and joust and feasts oh my. I mean, it was the high life. So at long last, love and luxury mm-hmm. and wonder of wonders, she was pregnant. Yay! Although, yeah, um the first daughter is stillborn. And then there was some cockamamie story that she was still pregnant with this baby's twin. Yeah. And it was some kind of phantom pregnancy, and they convinced her, the doctors did. These doctors, man, you should just get a vet <laughs> at this point. But that, that, I mean, that's happened. Yeah. That, so anyway, so child child number one is stillborn. Child number two is a boy. <gasps> Yay! He's born on New Year's Day. There was exultation in the land. The king had an heir. Yes, there is a big party. And um, they christened, he was Henry. Of course he was. Yeah. Who's named after? Oh, his father. Anyway. They actually (laughs) hired servants to lay non-slip mats Mm -hmm. all the way to the church (laughs) so that his nurse who was carrying him to the baptism would not slip. And she didn't. And in a custom that many women would welcome now, it was a custom for all new mothers of royal and aristocratic families to remain in their room for 40 days. Speaking of 40 days. I know. Well, yeah, that's a pretty biblical number. Well, anyway, so they're, they're 40 days in the room, chilling with their ladies, no men allowed. Sounds awesome sauce to me. After which, you were brought to church and washed of your sin. Of childbirth and the uncleanliness. Well, that I know. I'm just like, okay, patriarchal society. Good. Good for you. But it was called being churched. And so after 40 days, the mom was out. And there were tournaments and pageants for days. Then they received some very bad news. And the partying stopped. Immediately. Because poor little Henry, baby Henry, heir to the throne, died. 52 days after he was born. So close, and yet... So far. So she gets pregnant again, and this one is actually another miscarriage. Um, child number four is is another son, but he dies within weeks of his birth. And child number five is Mary, uh, who does live. She is the only child that survived. She's, and then there's two more pregnancies, no living children. In nine years, she she's had seven pregnancies and one child. And it's a girl. So that's all the pregnancies, but let's backtrack a little bit to right after Henry was born. So we've seen Catherine the Queen so far. We see her as loyal and stubborn and housewifely um, with her stitching and taking care of hubby. Like making he would break, his shirts. Making his shirts. He would break in and say that he was so hungry and was craving this one kind of meat, and she would just, like, make sure it happened. You know, she was mm-hmm. she was 50s housewife, basically. <laughs> um, but... What we have yet to see, she was already his trusted advisor. Mm-hmm. 
He came to her with everything, and she had very good advice. She was actually a good envoy for her father, for right. interests of Spain. Yep. She was very politically active. She's not just sitting there embroidering things and making shirts. And what we have yet to see still is Catherine, warrior queen. So... So there's three players, Spain, France, and England, and it seems like you could never, ever, ever get three of them playing nicely together, like three kids on a play date. Yes. So it was Spain and England versus France right now. Papa of Catherine and Catherine were behind Henry VIII's move to invade France, but Henry VIII wanted war anyway. He wanted fame. He wanted glory. This is how kings get remembered. And so he's all about it. But the problem is, who's going to babysit the country when he's gone? Um, Antonia Fraser, in one of her books, said, The king and his council forgot not the old pranks of the Scots, which is ever to invade England whenever the king is out. <laughs> and when the king <laughs> leaves the house, they run in take and take, try to take stuff. So that's bad. That's a real threat that has happened before and is probably going to happen again. Yep. So... She was made regent, which is an enormous responsibility, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, men obeyed her commands. Her word was law. She could summon troops. She's got her mother as a role model. Oh, yeah. Here. So- she could sign warrants. She could demand money from the treasury. At, you know, and this was no hollow responsibility. This is mm-hmm. not just a signature. Mm-hmm. She was the boss. So Henry VIII departed with a clever man named Thomas Wolsey, by the way, <sighs> who will come in later. But it was tearful on both sides. It was just, it was like... I mean, he was excited to go be a man. Have fun storming the castle. Literally. <laughs> and so James IV of Scotland did start moving in, all looking in the air, whistling like, la, 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 I'm not doing anything. His toe's getting closer to the line. <laughs> la, 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 these men, these women with, with me, no, they're just my dudes. We're just, uh, we're hunting. That's what we're doing. All these guys, eh, you know, these flags, we just like flags. We're not doing anything. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she had to get her crap in a row. So instead of being busy sewing banners, which is what she told Henry VIII she was doing, this is wifely, I'm going to sew some banners and make some, you know, standards and blah, blah, blah. Okay, no, she's preparing to defend the country. Okay, she commanded three separate bodies of men and actually rode out to the battle. She didn't ride into battle. That's not appropriate. No. She was there. She saw, you know, she saw what was going on. She Mm -hmm. was out on the site. And um, they did lose one castle, so that's a bummer. But um, they won a decisive, decisive battle against the Scots. Yay! And in fact, Catherine was able to send Henry VIII the coat of the dead King James of Scotland as a trophy. Here's a present for you, honey. Ah! Here's the coat of the dead. She, she wanted to send him King James, but people were like, that's, that's not what we do. But Henry VIII was over in France trying to accomplish some things. And his, he had some victories, mm-hmm. dismissively called dog holes. <laughs> I'm so glad he won over, over those ridiculous dog holes, is what somebody basically said, treasonously. Yeah. Diminishing his, like, Successful. this woman yes. just defended the country. And you're over here messing around. But she's Scarlett O'Hara, like, thank you for doing the dishes. You are such a good husband. I really appreciate you um, storming those castles in France while I was doing the hybrid home. But no, she kept it on side. That's right. Yeah, she, you, she... I love that 50s housewife. Yeah. That is so her. <laughs> anyway, yes. So she managed him well. The trouble was others were getting pretty good at managing it, too. Wolsey had become indispensable in France. 
And things that Henry VIII would automatically have normally taken to her, he started kind of taking to him. And her. by the time he came back, he was harder. He'd seen things. You know, he'd been famous. He was a man. So let's take a little break. And when we come back, we will explore the rest of Catherine of Aragon's life. And we are back. Now, Henry's been off in France, having his little battles. Thinking he's a man. Listening to Thomas Woolsey whispering in his ear. And then he comes back to England. And you know, he realizes something, much to his chagrin. All of his battles that he thought he was furthering the cause and being a player on the world stage. Catherine of Aragon's papa had been using him as a distraction, keeping France occupied on one side of the country, while in fact Spain was dealing with something on the other side of the country. And he was so mad and he felt so betrayed by that, that he just, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to marry my sister to the king of France. How about that? What the heck? Well, yeah. <laughs> so that was a big, yeah. serious deal. So now now we're friends with France because like we that. can't be friends with Spain. Because, well, Spain messed us over. Yeah. So betrayed <laughs> us. We had a treaty. No trick or treaty. <laughs> so Catherine had to choose her side, and obviously she chose her husband's side because she's no stupid person, and so she proves her loyalty to England and stays on his side. And a miracle happened. She's 30 years old, and she has a little girl. Yay! Who lives? Yay! That's fantastic. Little Mary is born, and um, she will be the only, even though there's, like I said before, two more pregnancies, she's the only one that makes it. I know. Henry took it in stride. He says, oh, well, sons will follow. So not seven months later, irritatingly, uh, Henry VIII's playmate, Bessie Blunt, had a baby boy that she presented to her sovereign as his child named Henry. Hmm. <sighs> so the queen had to take it on the chin, and she did. She kept it all inside again, like she always does. Okay. She even went to his birthday celebration, like, welcome to the world, baby Henry. I don't know how she could do it. Good well, for her. She could do it because she learned how to do it from her mama. Mm-hmm. Ferdinand was dipping his wick all over the place. All right. <laughs> you heard it here first. Susan and the euphemisms. The wick dipping of the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Band name. So Catherine was renowned for her charity. She was always very queenly. She famously saved the life of 300 poor wretches that had been brought before her husband with ropes around their necks on their way to execution, fell on her knees and begged him to please forgive them their sins and please do not execute them. And he acceded to her wishes. And she got all the credit for being the loving, charitable lady. It was great. She She had some good PR at this point. She's being a really good queen. She's very regal. She's very controlled. She is. And Erasmus, the great thinker of Europe, said, and I quote, about Henry and Catherine at this time, what family of citizens offers so clear an example of harmonious wedlock? Where could one find a wife more keen to equal her admirable spouse? But the fact is the court behind the scenes was kind of splitting. Mm -hmm. There was the frat party on one side and the theologians on the other side. So there's these soup kitchen with a bachelor party going on outside of it. <laughs> Working in harmony. Not really. 
They even called themselves the Minions, those frat boys over in Henry's. They called themselves the Minions. Is that funny? That's a contemporary reference if I ever heard one. That's funny. So the original Minions. So the relationship between Henry and Catherine gradually became one of deep respect. Even still love, you know, but not the admiration they once had. The once had before. Catherine put her energies into her daughter Mary, and Henry put his energies into another Mary who had arrived in the court as a lady-in-waiting. Do we see a pattern? That's stable. It's a stable. Mary Boleyn. Mary Boleyn. Now, just take a little brief moment to think about the other Boleyn girl, the movie where Mary is portrayed as this sweet, innocent. Not so much. She was schooled in the ways of the mattress. All right. You had another delicate terminology there. But she's, yeah. So... Henry takes up with Mary Boleyn. Which has got to be hard on Catherine, too. Oh, right. That's right under her nose. So it's kind of hard on Catherine to have to pretend every day, this big game, that this isn't happening behind the scenes. In fact, her husband is dedicating warships to this woman, showering her with jewels, and he's starting to get irritated that he doesn't have an heir. He has tried to pin all his hopes on perhaps his daughter Mary will marry a good man and their grandchild will be his heir. Right. And, you know, that's all he can really hope for at this point. Mary's not anywhere near marrying age. She's totally small. And her affianced husband, who is Spanish, decides he can't wait for Mary to grow up. And he marries someone else, which sends Henry into a bit of a rage. Okay, I'm not going to have this heir I'm going to have to make a new one. And so his little son, Henry Fitzroy, Bessie Blunt's little boy, he makes into a duke. Duke of Richmond. He sets him up as if he's going to be taking over at some point. Well, Henry Fitzroy, I think, was the final straw for Catherine of Aragon because at the same time that he set up the Duke of Richmond, he sent his daughter to Wales to take up her own establishment. She's nine years old. Now, in Henry's mind, well, princesses of Wales, although she didn't have that title, what I say, but Mm -hmm. princesses should learn their trade in Wales, like people do in my family. Let's go. It's legitimate, I think, in his mind, or he's trying to pretend it is. If he's going to set up this Duke of Richmond, he has to set up his daughter of equal status. She has to have her own household. A big household, in fact, with great honors, but far away. And Catherine lost her crap for the first time, I think, in their marriage. Uh-huh. She was sad. She was angry. And she did not regard this as equal status. She regarded this as a punishment for her for and that. for her daughter. Right. Well, she, she didn't do the one thing that Henry wanted her to do. I know. I'm not defending Henry VIII. Well, and I'm just really thinking, though, in his mind, it was an equal status thing. I don't really think, and if he was going to raise up Fitzroy to be his heir Mm -hmm. at all, if that was even in his mind, he wasn't thinking of replacing his wife. No. Because obviously that was like, all right, the Spanish window has closed for Mary. Right. Let's make a backseat plan. I don't think it included getting rid of Queen Catherine at all at this point. Or else why bother with the Duke of Richmond? Right. But, you know, that's just me. No, I can see that. So when she was 40, they reconciled for a very brief period of calm, dignified entertainments, progresses, meals, and then something very bad happened. Enter 
the woman that Henry is going to fall in love with, yet another lady-in-waiting for the queen, and the sister of his former mistress, Mary Boleyn. It's Anne Boleyn. She arrives on the scene fresh from France, where she's learned how to dress and how to talk and how to be French. She was totally Frenchified. <laughs> and we'll talk about her a little bit more um, in, her, in her own little podcast. But um, Anne Boleyn hits the, it hits the scene, and Henry falls hard for her. And her arrival coincided with doubts that Henry was having about the legitimacy of his marriage. Mm-hmm. Like, why can I not have sons with this woman? And he focused on, oh, ho, it's because she was married to my brother. I must be offending God. Yeah, he pulls out some uh, biblical references in Leviticus that says that you can't marry your brother's wife. You can't marry. So he's thinking that God is punishing him. This is what he's saying. So he he's saying that God is punishing him with no sons because he married his brother's wife. What part of his body was talking? I don't know, because Anne Boleyn is denying him. She does not want the same path that her sister had. She wants to be the queen. So she's denying him everything except uh, flirtation, I would say. So Henry decides he is going to ask for an annulment. And he tries to keep that from Catherine for a long time, Um, although she has an extensive spy network. She's no shrinking violet. She's not a diplomat for nothing. She knew about it for a year that something was going down. But can you imagine the shock? Uh, can you imagine the shock? Like, all of a sudden, she's going to be replaced by this person who she was ready to just accept as another ridiculous mistress and let it go on and then let it be over. Um, Anne Boleyn was no slouch either because she didn't want Henry to tell Catherine about this because she said that if Catherine and Henry talked, Catherine would have the upper hand. <laughs> so at least she knew her enemy. Yeah. But Henry anticipated smooth sailing. Seemed like a clear path to him. He had the Bible he thought on his side, and other monarchs had put wives aside in order for to beget heirs. You know, right. um, Louis Twelfth of France, for example, and he didn't think it would be a big deal. We'll just make it happen. And when he gathered up his courage and finally told her that after 18 years they had no legal marriage and never did, Catherine pulled out a secret weapon that she hadn't ever used before and weeped copiously all over him. And he got so uncomfortable, he bailed out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> so Anne was right that Henry got nothing Yeah, when it comes to, you know. Anne knew women. Mm-mm. She knew how they worked, that's for sure. And, you know, I always thought at this point that Catherine of Aragon was just stubborn and, like, held on to this obviously dead marriage out of some pride or something. Mm-hmm. And I never really gave her the credit. I mean, I'm always like, please, just can you just not call it? Now, that's hindsight, because now we see if she had called it right now right. and agreed how much easier things would have gone for everybody. Yes. But at the time, she thought that she was protecting his soul, protecting the English people's soul, because with Anne and her boobage and her (laughs) fabulousness came the Reformation. Mm -hmm. Anne's people were all about fixing the Catholic Church. Right. Which Catherine thought was perfectly fine. So so Catherine is protecting... English people from Mm -hmm. the Protestants. Catherine is protecting her daughter. Catherine is protecting herself. Mm -hmm. Catherine is protecting the institution of marriage. 
and that big golly whopper of a lie that maybe that she told about not having consummated her first marriage is what she's hanging everything on. Well, she's far, I have to say, she's far from alone. You get this image, especially when you watch the Tudors, that there she is sitting in a stone room by the fireplace all alone. But secretly or openly, she had a lot of supporters. And she had this network of spies and informers back to Spain. Um, her nephew even had the Pope as his prisoner. So take that. Yeah. How about that, <laughs> my king? You know, how about that for the chess big, game? Big, big chess game. Um, and simultaneously, she still sewed his shirts and was polite to him in front of people. Yeah, and... that's the thing that amazes me. They were both very civil to one another. Maybe it's because they had so much history together. Maybe mm. it's because Henry thought, oh, this is just a little glitch. We'll get over this. This is what God wants me to do. I don't know. Now, let's just, we're not going to cover the intricacies of the divorce proceedings because it could take a whole podcast, but they're complicated and fraught with back and forth, and let's just say she used theatrical monologues, persuasion, logic, politics, religion, guilt, like all the weapons at her disposal. Ultimately, she was not successful because Henry said, fine, if the church isn't going to grant me this, then I'm going to split from the church. This is, this is like 30 second summary of a big chunk of history, but um, he's, they split from the Catholic Church, and he becomes the head of the Church of England. Yeah, and ultimately, Henry VIII had a greater weapon than she had, and that is indifference. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, Anne's yes. practically the queen. She's been required, Catherine, to give her jewels to this person. She would send him a letter of, you know, goodbye, you know, have a nice trip or whatever, and he would send it back, like, why are you bothering with this. He sent her away to castle after castle after castle. And his his aim was to get people used to seeing Anne sitting in that chair. Anne wearing the jewels. Anne, Anne being the right. queen. Anne Just is to in get court. Her out of the way. Playing queen. Mm-hmm. While Catherine, who is still queen and still loved by the people. The people loved her. They did. She was a queenly queen. She was not an evil queen by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. She stood for all that was good and holy. And she was heading up the soup kitchen. And here's this girl showing off her things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, trying to take over and play queen. Well, and then he was so dastardly. I hate him for this. There was a little visit they had. 15-year-old Mary and Mama were visiting. And he separated them. He told Catherine she was to go one place and Mary was to go back home and they never saw each other again after Henry VIII had separated them. These mother and daughter that were so close and loved each other so much, they desperately missed each other. And Henry VIII just said, well, admit I'm the head of the church. Admit that you are now the Dowager Princess of Wales and have never been the queen. Admit your daughter's a bastard and Ollie Oxenfree. Come on back. And, of course, they're not going to do that. No. Mary's not going to admit that she's not a princess of, you know, the country. She's been the princess her whole life. Right. And the queen is certainly not going to say, oh, I was just the king's hoe for 20-some years. No. Yeah. There's nothing in it for her to do Mm -hmm. that other than to see her daughter again. But even that wasn't enough. I mean, she, she overlooked so much. She overlooked all of his infidelities. She stood by him when it came up against her dad. And now this. She can't take it. It's too much. So the king married Anne Boleyn in secret because Anne Boleyn was pregnant. And to get a legitimate child, you must be married to the mother. 
and he's the head of the church, and he can do what he wants. And he had already declared his marriage with Catherine invalid, and his new one was legitimate, as far as he's concerned. Yeah. Although the rest of Europe begged to differ. Yeah, well, (laughs) yeah. And the Archbishop of Canterbury had declared his marriage valid. Because the Archbishop of Canterbury was paid by Henry. (laughs) But, like, it's oranges and apples fighting over which is the better fruit. Henry is convinced this is the way it is. It doesn't matter. Right. That's, he's the king. That's it. So his poor wife, Catherine, I'm going to say she's still his wife. Yes. As I many, guess. many, many people did, in fact, mm-hmm. by the way, is basically sent from castle to castle in increasingly deplorable conditions. Something that she's lived through before. She's like, oh, okay. But coldly denied access to her daughter, even when her daughter was almost mortally ill. The king, eh. You know what to do. Sign the thing or Or. lump it. Yeah. Basically. And when she was 50, on Christmas Day, she began her last serious illness, very, very serious illness. Her friend, the Spanish ambassador, rode 90 miles in the cold. This is winter to see her. Uh, without permission from the king, right. by the way. So good for him. I think the Tudors, the TV show, did, does this part very good because the Spanish ambassador is was very much in touch with Catherine mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, he had been there so long. And she, at this point, so interestingly, she is in her final illness and she expressed doubts as to whether she'd done the right thing. All that, my point exactly though, like she wondered if she'd gone into a nunnery when this all first started, Henry wouldn't have fought with the Pope. Mm-hmm. The country wouldn't be in religious turmoil. The monasteries might not be closed. And see, when you close monasteries, um, you kind of remove the the aid for the poor right. that the monasteries mm-hmm. used to give, mm-hmm. the the traveler help that they used mm-hmm. to give. Like you're removing a lot of the support system for the poor if right. you take the monasteries down. She was wondering if she had ruined the country by her decision to stand Which by this marriage. Means she was a really good queen. She was thinking of her country, not just of her adopted country at that. So that was kind of her last um her last thought was of her people, it was forbidden for women who have a living husband to write a will. So all she wrote down was a list of requests for, you know, certain things to be given to Mary of clothes, um, where she'd like to be buried, which he disregarded completely. Just little things like that, like, please say messes for my soul and this and that. She got worse and worse. She had stomach pain and she was sleepless and it's thought perhaps, that she died of stomach cancer. But she did die uh, a couple weeks after Christmas on January 7th, 1536. Still the queen, as far as the people of England were concerned. Regardless of the dowager princess of Wales title that Henry insisted on thrusting upon her. And that she was buried with. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, on her tomb, a much, much later, um, I want to say 19th century Memorial says Catherine the Queen, but up until then it didn't say Catherine the Queen. And upon hearing the news of her death, Anne Boleyn wore yellow joyfully and very happily at a party and celebrated Ding Dong the Witch is Dead. Nice. Basically. And, oh well, sorry to tell you this, Anne, but four months from now, you will meet a similar demise, although yours won't be nearly as, as isolated and private and the people aren't going to be with you 
But more on that another time. So that has been Catherine of Aragon, the uh, one of the unhappiest queens toward oh. the end that I have ever read mm-hmm. about. I know. Um, you can follow Catherine of Aragon on Twitter. Um, there's it actually this woman doesn't have a whole lot of um followers yet, so maybe you guys can go follow her if you'd like some Catherine of Aragon history dropped into your Twitter feed every day. It's cat underscore of underscore Aragon and we will um, link you up up to that. <laughs> so let's follow all of them on Twitter. I have a couple of book recommendations. The author Julia Fox has written a book called Sister Queens, The Noble Tragic Lives of Catherine of Aragon and Juana, Queen of Castile. That's her slightly older sister. That gives you some great insight into the family life of Catherine of Aragon. Also, Antonia Fraser's classic, The Wives of Henry VIII, which is such a classic. This is a library book, and it is as wrecked as if it were my own book. That almost looks like your um, Tamerian English Lord book. I know, but I had nothing to do with the destruction of this book. It was this way when I got it. I hope they they believe me. And then um, The Constant Princess by Philippa Gregory is... In the vein of the other Boleyn girl, which she also wrote, a historical fiction that might be a good entry into reading about Catherine of Aragon. So if you read the fiction first and then go to some of the other sources, the classic Netflix streaming David Starkey, The Monarchy, also another resource for this yeah, podcast and so many others. Yeah, we have quite a few resources already um, up for the other Tudor episodes that we've done. If you want, we can link it, get the links for that. On and David Starkey also has a book called The Wives, The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Do you have any website? I don't have any new ones. I mean, just the ones that we've talked about before. Um, and of co- my absolute, my favorite as far as quick but detailed is luminarium.org. It's got quick but very detailed synopsises of their lives with links to all the other things that were going on. So if you if you're reading about Catherine of Aragon, you can read about Ferdinand and Isabella, and so I re- that's the site I like the best. And so um, I would like to close with a quote from the last letter of Queen Catherine to her husband as she saw him, King Henry VIII. And I quote, My most dear lord, king, and husband, the hour of my death is approaching. I cannot choose, but out of the love I bear you, advise you of your soul's health, which you ought to prefer before considerations of the world, for which yet you have cast me into many calamities and yourself into many troubles. I forgive you all and pray God to do so likewise. Lastly, I make this vow that mine eyes desire you above all things. Farewell very sad. It is. That's a lot of words to say when you've got a massive tumor in your internal organs. Well, it was dictated, (laughs) I'm sure. She never lost hope and she put her faith definitely in an unworthy source. And for that, I feel very bad for Catherine of Aragon. Chapter 2 Anne Boleyn Let's talk about Anne Boleyn. Talk about the life of this woman who is known through history in not the most pleasant terms. Oh, Anne Boleyn, Anne Boleyn, history has not been kind to you. Now, we touched on her last time during Catherine of Aragon because their lives really did intertwine. But let's go back a little bit more in her life and look at where she came from. 
When was she born? Records don't tell us when she was born. It can be, it, I saw dates anywhere from 1500 to 1509. That's almost a 10 year span. Her father is, was Sir Thomas Boleyn, who was the son of an earl. He was a diplomat for Henry VII and then subsequently for Henry VIII. Her mother was Elizabeth, who was the daughter of an earl. So she's in a noble family. She's a girl of means. Um, she has two siblings, Mary and George. And we touched on Mary's life in the Catherine of Aragon podcast. But up until she starts making some professional moves, we really don't know a whole lot about her. You know, she learned to play the lute. She learned to dance. She probably learned etiquette and some languages, reading and writing, these are things that she was going to need in the life that her parents had planned for her. Um, she was very witty and very smart and very charming. That's all we really, we really don't have a whole lot on her childhood. She was taught to be a courtier. That we do know. And she was sent at a relatively young age. Some say as young as four, but Susan and I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, that seems highly improbable. But it does. Um, for, it makes for a good story, though. Before she was sent to court. Yeah. <laughs> but probably around 14, which was still kind of early. Her parents thought carefully about what would give their daughter the best polish. And they looked around at courts all over Europe and decided that the best thing to do would be to send her to the Archduchess Margaret in Austria. And she served there for a little while, and then she was sent with Mary Tudor. Queen of France, Henry VIII's sister, to be one of her ladies in waiting when she traveled to France to take up her new duties. And as that situation didn't last very long, Anne Boleyn also stayed to serve the next queen, Queen Claude. And so she stayed in France for quite a long time. And she got quite the education while she was there. Oh my, did she ever. Although not quite the education Mary got, evidently. No, but... Mary graduated, (laughs) shall we say. And the rumor is that Anne did not matriculate. Oh, is that what we're calling it? Matriculation. That's what these crazy kids are calling it these days. But she did acquire an exotic way about her. So when she came back to the English court, she was more French than English. She had been... Frenchified. Most certainly. (laughs) Anyway. So ultimately, a match has been arranged for her. The Earl of Ormond, an Irish peer, has a son who has quite a bit of land and some money, and Anne is brought home, ostensibly, to marry this gentleman. But it all falls through. It all falls through. She does not get married to him. And so negotiations have to start somewhere else. And so, with nothing else to do... The well-brought-up young lady goes to the court of England. Her uncle, the powerful Duke of Norfolk, is a mover and a shaker. And a snake. And a snake. And he is the consummate courtier. And he, with the weak, the weak second, her father, mm-hmm. Sir Thomas, decide to go ahead and put Anne at court. She's a beautiful young lady. You never know why, what fish we might turn up. You never do. Now, let's talk about how she looks. She actually, and let's go back to the Tudors, that actress actually kind of nailed her. I mean, she was dark-haired, brown-eyed, olive-skinned. She looked more like her than the one that played Catherine of Aragon, I would say. Yeah. Now, what about the extra finger? You read that she had six fingers and a big mole on her neck, and 
anybody credible that I've seen says, no, that's ridiculous. She never would have been accepted by Henry with that type of disfigurement. It was too witch-like. I think it was traced back to a writer 50 years after her death who was still bitter about Henry's separation from the Catholic Church. So We can take that with a grain of salt. Just take it from the source. Yeah, she probably didn't have six fingers. But she's beautiful, but not strikingly so. I think her beauty came from her wit and her charm. And in an era when fair maidens were seen as not only the beautiful ones, but fair maidens are the virtuous ones. If you're blonde with white complexion and light eyes, well, you must have a good soul, because that's how you were made. Well, then, how do you account for snappy, vivacious, dark, exotique with the French mannerisms? Wow, that's going to be something new at court. (laughs) Well, she makes quite a splash. Now, it's true that Anne had a love match in mind for herself. She wanted to marry Henry Percy of Northumberland. Now, this man, basically, his family owned half of England. It was a pretty (laughs) high match. And Um, he had been betrothed to someone else since childhood. mm -hmm. So she's coming in late to the game, and she enchants him. And he falls in love with her, and she falls in love with him, and together they really think they can pull it off. And by all accounts, they had a secret marriage, which she was forced to repudiate quite heavily, because no way was that Lord Percy's father going to allow him to throw himself away on a nobody when this match had been arranged for him, and it was not up to him. And from her side, the Duke of Norfolk was quite uh, irritated that she had incurred the wrath of such powerful people. Right. Well, she also, Cardinal Woolsey got in on this, too, and he t- had told Henry Percy's father that this all was going down. He, uh, yeah, he's a piece of work. <laughs> so uh, the Duke of Norfolk happens to notice, however, that his king who is in need of a new wife, by all accounts, because he has no heir. Right. And there is a problem with that. Hmm, I wonder. And so he orders Anne to put herself in the king's way and to gather his attention. And it's really not that hard. It's not, because within a year of her landing at court, Henry is convinced that he wants her as his bride. That's the underlying story in the Catherine of Aragon story. You know, he's claiming all this religious reasons, but... If another part of his body is doing the thinking, like the millionaire matchmaker says, that that part of your body does the picking for the men. Mm. Like it's like, a who? <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything about that show. Yep. I'm going to have to take that on faith. You have to. It's like, bravo. It's one of my guilty pleasures. Anyway, um, so he's he's got his eye on her. But she has... She has not got plans to be a discarded mistress as her sister was. He offered her the position... Completely vacant in England, as far as I know, for a very long time, the maîtresse en titre position, which is so popular in France, which means I will set you up as a almost queen. You will be first lady in all things. You just will not be the official queen. I will have no other mistresses but you. I will not even visit the queen's bed. You will be my object. And that wasn't good enough for her because she saw how easily these mistresses could be discarded and palmed off and married to some minor nobleman and never heard from again. That wasn't the life she set out for herself. So if she was going to go for the prize, well, she was going to go for the prize. Yep. With the backing of her family, yeah. I might say. Yeah, the backing, the pushing, the scheming mm-hmm. of her family. Because that's, they're, 
she does well, they do well. Yes. That's just the way it worked. Honors are handed out willy-nilly. And so, Catherine of Aragon is definitely outclassed in the chutzpah department (laughs) by this newcomer who captivates the king despite the fact that the people do not like her and often hiss her and, you know, call her names and everything. So, um, in order to be a suitable companion for the king and, indeed, for her to be presented to other noblemen, such as the king of France, etc., um, she had to have a title, and not just the daughter of a sir. She needed to have her own title. He gave her a title in her own right. And she was t- entitled the Marquess of Pembroke. Which had special meaning to Henry because his uncle, his great uncle, Jasper Tudor's castle was Pembroke Castle. Mm-hmm. And so to make her the Marquess of Pembroke in her own right... It's yeah. a hearkening back to his family. That's right. like a family name. And, and Henry, during this time, is being very romantic to her. Um, he's giving her gifts, and he is wooing her. He's still married, technically, but he is pulling out all the stops. And Henry does not like to put pen to paper himself. He prefers to dictate. He prefers to let other people do his writing for him. But he actually takes the time to sit down and write Love letters to Anne Boleyn. Like in writing. So there's proof. Mm-hmm. There's physical proof. And, um, we'll, hey, we'll go ahead and print this on our show notes if you want to read some love letters. One of them that I'm just looking at right now, he writes, In my sweetheart's arms, whose pretty duckies I shortly to kiss, written with the hand of him that was, is, and shall be yours by his will. Wow. And pretty duckies don't refer to backlinks. <laughs> it's a euphemism for décolletage, mm-hmm. shall we say. Yeah. Hmm. So really, you know, she's not giving it up, but she's kind of giving it up more than probably is proper for someone. Yeah, and she actually had another fellow courting her for a bit, um, a poet by the name of Sir Thomas Wyatt. He tried to court her early on in her days um, in court, but Henry sent him away because he saw that she was giving him some attention and Henry wanted her all to himself. He was kind of jealous and really in love with this woman. So he sent him away, as the king can do, I suppose. So for seven years, they carried on this relationship while Henry is trying to get his annulment and get rid of his first wife. For seven years, they have this relationship up until the end when all of a sudden Anne becomes pregnant. And so the the hustling has to start happening because if Anne has a child out of wedlock, it makes no difference because it's still a bastard. Bastard. If this baby in her tummy is a boy, this could be his heir, and he will have missed his chance. And so the machinery for breaking away from the church comes into full force. He declares himself head of the church. He declares his marriage invalid. It is over. He marries Anne Boleyn when she is pregnant, and she is crowned queen when she is six months pregnant, as if to put a seal on it, that no doubt this is my legitimate queen, with my legitimate heir in her legitimate tummy. (laughs) And when she legitimately gives birth, it's not a boy. She gives birth to Elizabeth, who will, of course, become the future queen of England, but at the time, oh, another it's girl. Wah, wah, wah. 
You know, in fact, they had the announcements all drawn up and everything, and they had to, um, it was like, Her Majesty delivered of a prince, and, you know, it was all ready to go out, and somebody had to go in and handwrite a little, there was enough room to put an S after, <laughs> and see P-R-I-N-C-E-S was enough of a spelling of the time of princess to make it legit. There's not room for two S's, so they just put one, and they had to send that out instead, and it was a big And I think maybe Henry started to feel a little bit um, irritated. He'd broken his kingdom. He'd broken away from the church. There's turmoil. There's chaos to get an heir, which he thought God was going to give him, and it turned out like this. And maybe he was wrong, and he couldn't be wrong, so obviously something was wrong with Anne. Yeah, but she was not a popular queen, although he'd been standing up for her up until about this time. She was, you know, people looked at her as an adulteress. Going back to the whole religious aspect, she was a Protestant. She was pushing the Protestant agenda big time. So and she had an enemy in the Pope. When the Pope doesn't like you <laughs> and knows who you are and wishes that you were dead, well, that's a bad enemy to have if well, the Pope doesn't like you. That's true. And she's pissed at Woolsey already, so they're not getting along at all. So Woolsey's not her fan, although she she's so pissed at him, she urges for his beheading. Yeah, I know, kind of going to her head. I don't know that she was necessarily a bad person. I mean, history kind of points her out as being a conniving bad, horrible person. But honestly, I think Henry was already going down this path anyway with getting rid of Catherine. Mm -hmm. He was already cruel. He really already was. Right. He had it in him from the very beginning. He was already a spoiled, rotten brat. I think she was an enabler. Like, she let him do that, and she encouraged him to do that. And honestly, by that behavior, I think she encouraged him to become an utter monster. And when you let that monster out of the cage... If it's going to bite you. Yeah, and if you don't know, the only thing that is going to control that monster is to spit out a boy. And she doesn't. She has two more stillborns. One of them is a boy who is actually born on the day of Catherine's funeral. There's no boys. Henry's seeing that. That's why he married her was for the boys, and she's not, she's not bringing them. And then he sees somebody else back in the stable. <laughs> Jane Seymour, one of the ladies in waiting to Anne Boleyn, Catches the eye of Henry. Now, of course, Henry has had three affairs during their short marriage. (laughs) And Anne was jealous. Actually, maybe they were a good batch because they're both jealous people. That tempestuous humor that you like in a mistress, that come hither, no, go away. Come hither, Mm -hmm. go, go away. Like, they used to get ragingly angry at each other and then adjourn to the bedroom to make up, etc. That in a mistress is awesome. That in a wife, a wife you expect at the time. Remember, he had the 50s housewife before. Mm-hmm. He had Catherine of Aragon, who it was like, what is your will? Let's let's make that happen. How dare you have this dinner when his majesty wanted another dinner? Let's get that taken care of. Well, Anne didn't care about his comfort or you know, what his shirts looked like as long as, you know, she wasn't going to make his shirts, but Catherine of Aragon wasn't going to make his shirts. That's all she cared about. So he was missing that, like, I I almost wonder if he regretted quite a bit putting this tempestuous nightmare next to him instead of the calmness he was so used to. I think Mm -hmm. he might have had some regrets at this point. Right. Now, she did cross some lines several times. She mentioned in people's hearing that the king was not such a good lover. Mm Mm-hmm that his powers were not what they once were, 
etc. That was pretty indiscreet, especially when people don't like you. Right. And that was fuel to the fire for his anger against her. And given that he had a backup girl in the wings, he saw no problem in, although he treated her well, to her face, Mm -hmm. in behind the scenes, getting this machinery of doom lined up against her. Let's go to the Tudors for a second, the Showtime series. I think they did a pretty good job with this. They brought in, you know, the ladies in waitings and questioned them in horrible conditions and made them say things that maybe, you know, sounded like they were allegations. And then they brought people in who allegedly had had these affairs with Anne. And he was at a tournament on May Day with her. There's jousting. There's happiness. People are carrying people's favors. Horses are running. Horns are playing. And all of a sudden, he receives a note. And he gets up. And he leaves. And that is the last time Anne ever saw him. Because she was taken into custody at that point. They had, quote, unquote, proof. And, you know, he's the king. He can find proof wherever he wants it. And these people were cruel to get that proof. Mm-hmm. You know, they're torturing. And again, I'm going to go back to the tutors, and I hate to do this, but they show this particular segment pretty well. You know, the torture and the quick and speedy inquisition that came about. Yeah, so the men were found guilty. Actually, anything that I read, it's highly unlikely that these charges were true. Now, ironically, the one man, Wyatt, the poet, who wooed her once upon a time, may actually have known her, as they say. Um, But he got off scot-free as, you know, he was of no importance. And the irony being, he's probably the one. The only one that did. Hmm. Yep. But the rest of them, they met the same fate that uh, Woolsey met. That's right. Um, now, Anne went on trial. I put trial in air quotes. Anne went on trial. The thing is, Henry had already ordered the executioner to set sail from Calais before Anne ever set foot in that room. So the outcome was a done deal, shall we say. Henry knew the outcome was a done deal. It was just a formality. He already knew he, who she he was going to replace her with. Yeah, and traditionally, the... Fate, one meets, if you're a woman convicted of treason, which cuckolding a king is treason, you are to be burnt at the stake. And the king, in his gracious wisdom, commuted it to simple beheading. And not, you're not going to have the regular old executioner with the big old axe. I've sent for a special guy for you from Calais, and he's coming. And the delay, and the delay, and the delay. She knew she was going to die. She's hanging out in rooms in the Tower of London at this mm-hmm. point. She's not any place fancy mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. She's being watched all the time. The women that are in her attendance are instructed to be telling everything to Ironically, her uncle, mm-hmm. the same guy who pimped her into the place to begin with. And had passed sentence on her, her yeah. uncle, her own uncle. Her father was allowed to excuse himself on the grounds of, you know, his close relation to her. But her uncle felt no scruples and None was completely it. willing to condemn her. So after many delays, which must be heartbreaking if you think you're ready, and then there's another delay, the swordsman had come from Calais. The expert swordsman that Henry VIII had ordered, especially to make her last moments easier, which I think he ordered a French swordsman as that last bit of rage toward her, like, oh, well, why don't you die like a French person then, you <laughs> French lady yeah. that you think you are. You brought all your Frenchification to court. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ooh, so yeah. love turned to such hate, didn't it? It did. 
Oof, that was bad. I mean, it is size of the same coin, maybe. But anyway, so the day of her execution had come. She was dressed in a gray dress with a scarlet undergown. She was calm. She was composed. She was very, very sad. I have to tell you, Natalie Dormer in The Tudors pulls this off better than any film adaptation I have ever seen. Yeah, we... We'll talk about um, the other Bolin girl in a minute. But, yeah, I think that whole scene is kind of disturbing as it is to watch because you know what's going to happen. She does come to the, the scaffold stage. I don't even know what it's called. Um, with such dignity. And you could see the emotion inside, though. Man, she does it so well. She does not rail against her fate. She does not curse Henry. She does not... You know, she, she's she been maintaining her innocence all along. And at these times, at these times, people thought that when you die, you immediately have to face your maker. People probably still think that. But at this time, it was like the force of... Yes, yes we do. <laughs> but this time, it was like the force of... I mean, it was superstition, right. almost, right. level. Right. And so, to maintain your innocence right before... You're on the scaffold. The guy's right here with the sword. You will be within a minute and a half in front of God. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you now still maintain your innocence. Well, that actually convinced the bystanders. Mm-hmm. I mean, that actually softened their heart toward her, I do believe. And she simply asked them to pray for her. So Anne asked that she has a few words before the deed is done. Um, it, it's not the same as if the hatchet man is doing it, where you would lay down. Um, it's more of a kneeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so she asks to have a few minutes before before that happens to say some words, and she's she says a few, and she talks of her of Henry, and she says, and send him long reign over you, for a gentler nor a more merciful prince was there never, and to me he was ever a good, a gentle, and sovereign lord. It's awfully generous of her. Wow, he was always good and gentle up to this point when the French swordsman is about to knock off my head. Wow. Okay. And she simply um, asked everyone to pray for her soul, and she knelt down and began to pray out loud, commend, you know, commending her soul to God mm-hmm. and have mercy on her, etc. And the swordsman did, and this is actually dramatized in the Tudors, too. I know, it's very kind of good. Well. They, they hit this last thing pretty well, although a lot of other things they didn't, you know. But um, there was a ruse that the swordsman employed to get the victims' heads at the right angle for him. Right. I mean, it was a kindness to the victim, too, but it was like, it, it was good for his reputation. Right. If he could do also, it in one shot, mm-hmm. then. And so what he did was, he had the sword hidden and he would call across the victim, boy, bring my sword. And the victim would naturally turn their head toward that sound where the sword was coming from, they thought. Meanwhile, the sword would hit them from the other side, cleanly. It was over instantly. The ladies that had been attending her in the tower, all at this point weeping just from their belief now in her innocence, too late as it was, um, gathered her body up. No preparations had been made to take her body anywhere. No plans had been made. There's no coffin. She was put in a basket and an arrow box and bundled out of sight. It, it just shocks me. And then the the bells are ringing that she is dead, and meanwhile, where is Henry? He's off with Jane. He is, because the very next day he's betrothed to her. Moving on, looking for that heir. 
We'll have to save that story for another podcast. That's true. And so Anne Boleyn, who styled herself the most happy, ended up quite the most unhappy. But Anne got hers back because her daughter, the little the little Elizabeth, the one that was the bastard of the concubine of Henry VIII, became one of the greatest monarchs England had ever known. So Anne Boleyn's legacy did live on through her little child. So, at last, she got her own back. But that the life of Anne Boleyn was a roller coaster. It was. And the, the once she got what she wanted, which was to be queen, not much life left after that. Mm-hmm. It, was, it went pretty fast. Um, as far as, you know, media and websites and stuff, just go back to our show notes on all of our other Tudors podcasts and um, link to those. Um, you can follow Anne Boleyn on Twitter. Actually, there's two of them that I found. One is just Anne Boleyn, um, which you'll get character tweets, I'm calling them, the mm-hmm. tweets as if it was Anne Boleyn. And another one is actually a website, and we can link you to this. It's the Anne Boleyn Files, and it's a new book as well, which I haven't read. So I can't tell you what it's about exactly, but it's that's also a good website, and we'll we'll link you to that, and you can follow um, her on Twitter as well. And curiously, every Renaissance fair I've ever been to, mm-hmm. the little parade they have, the Queen is always Anne Boleyn, even though she was hardly even the Queen for very long for a very long time. But yeah. yet she's got such a romanticness about her that all the ladies of the Renaissance fair want to be Queen Anne Boleyn. So that's who you're going to see typically parading around with King Henry at uh-huh. the Renaissance fair, which I always think is interesting because if you know she was hardly even there. She was a flash in the pan mm-hmm. as a queen, mm-hmm. but yet she yes. lives on every September in Renaissance fairs across America. That's funny. Do you want to spend a couple minutes talking about how much you love the other Boleyn girl? And I say love. Oh, you know what? As a matter of fact, I love the book, The Other Boleyn Girl. Yes. yes. Um, I do. It is complete and utter fiction, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, Philippa Gregory is really good at weaving things in to make them seem... Um, it's hard to tell what's realistic. Yeah, yeah. and that's and so that. it's a good start. It's a good entertainment. I do not care for the movie at all, no. but I believe I don't care for the movie because along came a superior production value show called The Tudors, equally as wrong historically, but with much better costumery and um, you know set design and everything. So and it got overshadowed. You're a fan of how Miss Miss Portman played. No, I have to say, you. <laughs> I know, she she wants me to say something bad. Natalie Portman is a fabulous actress. A suitably wooden performer. <laughs> Susan, is that what you want me to say? No. <laughs> Did you not see, what's the one where she plays the swan? What was that movie? No, the I Black didn't see that swan. She was crazy. Well, there she you go. She was like controlled crazy, which is kind of similar. Well, I loved Natalie Dormer. I know mm-hmm. Natalie Dormer has blue eyes. Are we going to, like, and, be upset about and that? And in the later, in some episodes, the roots of her hair, which is not naturally dark, is growing in. So it's, instead of, like, you see a lot of blondes with the dark roots, you have a brunette with blonde roots coming in. I personally didn't like the, this movie because they just made Mary just this virginal sweetness. And, oh, I wish I could be like my sister Mary, who's just earn the heart of the king and all that because she was not that at all. So that's why I don't like it. But, I mean, you know, watch it. Whatever. Yeah. Make your own opinions, but 
not really big fans over here. Uh, I will tell you, though, Mary Boleyn was the only smart one. Because yeah, she bailed out of court. She married someone for love who was not of her rank at all and basically went away from court to live in the country in a lovely estate, which I don't know why everyone doesn't do that, frankly. Who wants this? I, I always know. think when I read about the Tudors, like, who would want this crap? Why is this fun? Why is this desirable? Mary Boleyn, even though she was not regarded as the smart one in the family, ended up being the smart one in the family because she ended up with happiness when everyone else ended up with no head. And there's always the tutors. The season with Anne Boleyn in it, I will say, is the most fleshical fantasy ever known. Every time there was some flesh showing, a child would walk in the room. And I'm, like, watching on my laptop with earbuds in, and they still seem to just walk in. It's like, oh, man. Chapter 3, Jane Seymour. So Jane Seymour was the daughter of Sir John Seymour and Marjorie Wentworth, who were courtiers of long service. There's whole histories of families who basically have lived at court through multiple generations. Mm -hmm. And that is where they live. That is their home. And these are some of those. Although, you know, they'll have country houses, but their main residence would be wherever the king is. Jane was one of ten children. And in those days, family fertility equaled... Your fertility, as far as anyone knew. So she was good wife material for sure. a king. She was not brought up with an education like Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. By no means was she an intellectual. Um, but she was regarded as a woman of good sense and intelligence, which don't always go together, by the way. <laughs> and then the fact I was thinking, because she had been a lady-in-waiting to both Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, mm-hmm. and she emerged with her reputation intact, which I think took a miraculous amount of virtue yes. to get through that period not having lost your reputation. That's true. That's very true. Well, I mean, Anne Boleyn's era. That's <laughs> a good point. So she began to attract the notice of Henry VIII in her mid-twenties. She's the polar opposite of Anne Boleyn. She's modest, not vain, quiet, not loud, subservient, not shrewish and demanding. And her looks, you know... Who can tell from these portraits? Seriously, I said it once and I'll say it again. They all look very grim. (laughs) They just all look very grim. But according to contemporary statements, you know, she was attractive. And the fair lady with blonde hair and blue eyes was associated with goodness. Blonde hair was associated with virtue. I'm sitting here up just a little bit straighter. Granted, it's from a box. (laughs) It's enhanced a little bit. Just think, but, Pamela yeah. Anderson would have been... I know, she would have been like the an angel. epitome of virtue. <laughs> so this behavior of hers was probably not an act. She probably was modest. She probably was virtuous. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon. That's pretty much how you're supposed to be. Right. It's just that the, the previous incumbent was so not that, that this <laughs> looked amazing by contrast. So her ambitious relatives, though, were the ones they seized this opportunity to put her in his way. And then soon they were sweethearts, you know, chaste sweethearts. Mm -hmm. There's um, this scene, and they exploited in the Tudors about James sitting on his lap and stuff. And there's doubt that that kind of thing ever even happened before marriage. Doubt that a lot of things in the Tudor series ever really happened. No, I'm just saying it's not right. only oh, in the I Tudor see. series. Yeah. I'm saying it's it's yes. pictured there. Yes, yes. And it's a very common, um, you know, trope. Like Jane Seymour sitting on the lab, mm-hmm. the Anne Boleyn comes in, blah, 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 
Yeah, has a miscarriage, but there's doubt that that ever kind of thing ever happened. Now, I will say everywhere they went during this period, she was given rooms awful close to the king. And, you know, the hidden staircase hallway thing Mm -hmm. that's so common. I wish I had one in my house. (laughs) It would be really neat. Um, So a secret passage leads me to believe that perhaps we don't have our virtue intact the whole time. No. Knowing Henry. But Henry, yeah. I know. How would, I don't know how anybody would not give in to Henry. I mean. At this time, he's still handsome. He's still handsome. Yeah. He's the king. He's got the power. He's got the money. He, I mean, okay, so his first wife, you know, he figured out a way to leave her. His second wife at this time is still alive. So. We don't have the bad reputation yet. Not yet. Okay, so the scurrilous rumors engendered by these secret passages and things went around, and Henry wrote to her once and sent this kind of large amount of money as a gift. And she famously sent it back to him, saying, Please, only when I make an honorable marriage will I accept a gift of money from you. He's delighted with this withdrawal. Oh, nice. Delighted. But you know, where did she learn this pullback situation? That was from Anne Boleyn. Mm-hmm. Anne Boleyn trained, trained her competitors, I say. Well, Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour were contemporaries mm-hmm. before Anne Boleyn was. They were ladies in waiting together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's a very tiring thing because you're sitting around basically leaning against a wall waiting for things. To happen, for people to appear, for people to be tired enough to go to bed. It's in the title, ladies in waiting. <laughs> That's true. So they're You waiting. should know. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've talked earlier about Anne Boleyn's fall, her big fall from grace. Here is the dirty thing. Eleven days later, he marries Jane Seymour. Yeah, there's... Uh, there's a movie out. It's um, from the 1930s. It's uh, The Private Life of Henry VIII with Charles Lawton, who could very well be, physically looks a lot more like Henry VIII than... Jonathan Rhys-Meyers. Yes, who's very handsome, but doesn't look anything like Henry VIII. So this movie is kind of interesting to watch um, because of that, the, the way that um, Charles Lawton portrays him but at the very first scene they're waiting for Anne Boleyn's head to fall off so that he can marry Jane Seymour which isn't exactly true it was about 24 hours they got engaged and then married shortly thereafter 11 days does she have no qualms this is what I'm thinking it's like huh because you know the Catherine of Aragon thing where she'd been sent away Mm -hmm. you know we talked about it before it's like everyone can kind of understand a king that needs an heir and needs to replace a menopausal wife with someone willing to give him children. That is explainable, but the death of Anne Boleyn kind of has sent some shockwaves, I think, through Europe. On the flip side, Jane Seymour is nothing like Anne Boleyn, so right. she's maybe thinking, well, I know what she, where she screwed up. I okay. am not going to yeah. go down that road. That is not me. Now, her motto, in fact, you're right, her, her motto was bound to obey and serve. She was very deferential, which is smart. I would be deferential, too, if, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My predecessor had meant that sort of an end. Oh, sure. Um, She was very peaceable queen, and she brought about a reconciliation between Mary, his oldest daughter, and Henry VIII, and they had a good relationship together, um, young Mary and her new stepmother. Mm -hmm. She even brought Elizabeth to court... Although there wasn't that same kind of level of, like, welcome back. Right. It's like, hello, little visitor with the red hair. Welcome. Now go back home. But, yeah. Um, Jane had a very high level of 
behavioral expectations, her ladies must be above reproach. The clothing was more modest. The French fashions were thrown away. No more of this hoochie crap. Someone said, sarcastically, oh ho, now the poacher has become the gamekeeper. Mm-hmm. Now that you're in, you're removing the weaponry of the next item up for bids. Which is smart. Which is smart. Which was really smart. But let's talk about the coronation. Or not. Yeah, she wasn't no. crowned. Now, although he did intend, I think, to crown her, but it was delayed due to plague breaking out in mm-hmm. the city. Or was it delayed because she hasn't given him that male heir yet? There was only one argument that they really had. There was a rebellion in the north. The Yorkshire and Lincolnshire people mm-hmm. were rebelling against King Henry um, after he had destroyed so many churches and abbeys. And Jane mentioned calmly that perhaps God allowed this rebellion as a punishment for doing that. And Henry lost his crap, and he got in her face, and he reminded her in no uncertain terms what happened to the last queen who meddled in his business. And after that, she never participated. Dude, blame her. (laughs) Probably just testing the waters and decided the water was just a little too hot for her taste. Well, how must it be to be so afraid of a husband? Seriously. Well. And have to live this whole thing out in public. She must have had a seriously good poker face. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she thought that was that was what she was supposed to do. I guess so. Poor Jane. I know, poor Jane. But she's pregnant within a year. That's her salvation. That's anybody's salvation, I think, if you're the queen of this guy. So, um, hooray. And he sent out a notice, our most dear and beloved queen, you know, Mm -hmm. was the preface. Yeah. She went into confinement, which is a very civilized... Would you have liked to have gone into confinement? It's a month, or sometimes two, Mm -hmm. of hanging out in your bed, talking to your friends. Mm -hmm. The only bad thing is they they covered all the windows. I know. I was just going to say, they show that in the the other Boleyn sister, when Jane goes into confinement, and all the windows get... Yeah. It's just dark and I But on the other hand, you know You just have to lay there. Your whole job is just to grow that prince. As long as they give me enough, you know, Vogue magazines and access to the internet, it would be nice. Yeah, I know. That's right. <laughs> My laptop. I got some Pinterest boards to work on. <laughs> My confinement board. (laughs) (laughs) So so that was the tradition to kind of ensure the best chance of the baby being healthy there at the end. You know, nobody's riding horses. Nobody's running or having a chance to fall. That's kind of why they did that. So after an unfortunately horribly long labor of a couple of days, at long last, Henry VIII had his long-awaited son, the heir to his dynasty. I know. Instant legitimate heir, what a relief. Um, Henry VIII is said to be holding his son and weeping. Well, do you, I mean, he's gone through two wives now. He needed this boy, you know, a legitimate, he's had, he's had a boy, illegitimately. Well, and if you think about how much trauma there has just been in the country with the succession being Mm -hmm. in question for so long, this boy, this little baby will ensure that Henry's country stays in peace. Mm -hmm. And in his family line. Yes. Yeah. Now let me ask you, the C-section thing, there's some rumor is that perhaps she had had a C-section well, because or it was that, such a difficult yeah. delivery. Or that her life was sacrificed mm-hmm. for the child's mm-hmm. life. And honestly, okay, I want you to think about, like, we don't like 
18th century medicine. I know. So go back, if you will, to further than that. And I don't know that you'd want to give somebody a C-section. I mean, the death death would be instantaneous. I don't think that she would have survived very long. That's a lot of blood. Yeah, and I keep thinking there is one case of a C-section lady surviving, but it was her husband that did it, and they think it was an outside-of-the-universe pregnancy. Oh. And I want to say he was like a blacksmith or a butcher, like someone not in the medical profession at all. Well, I would actually want a butcher. I don't know about a blacksmith. They, I think I'd they want work a, in hammers and I'd want a horse doctor is who I'd want. Someone willing to take care of a valuable animal oh, is who yes. I'd want as my doctor. But second best would probably be a butcher because at least they know how to work a knife. Okay, so anyway, yes. I don't and they think, know a bit about anatomy. That's, that's important. So, no, I don't think she did um, no. because she was well enough to receive visitors with, within a few hours. Right, and she's not was bleeding out onto the bed. She yeah. was talking. She seemed fine. She seemed fine, but three days later, she went downhill very quickly. Probably our old enemy on this podcast, childbed fever, mm-hmm. puerperal fever, they mm-hmm. call it, could have been a detached placenta. I mean, who knows? Yeah. The details are lost yeah. time. But the outcome is that she died of childbirth then 12 days after the birth of England's heir, and she was only 28. Whoa. She was buried, ultimately, with Henry VIII, in Windsor Castle, and he always regarded her as his one true wife. Even after the subsequent wives, even given the long-term relationship he had with Catherine of Aragon, mm-hmm. Jane Seymour was regarded as his one true wife. And for a while, on her grave, there was the following. Here lieth a phoenix, by whose death another phoenix life gave breath. It is to be lamented much, the world at once ne'er knew to such. So basically, he was thanking her for her sacrifice and giving her life so the new life can be launched into the world. That was nice. He did three months of deep mourning, uh, almost three years of bachelordom after that, which is unprecedented for Henry. Now, yeah, I'm not saying three just, years of celibacy No, I'm going to say he probably wasn't, yeah. I'm, just I'm saying, sure there was a number of families that were trying to get their yeah. daughters under that crown. But I think he was all done. I kind of think he was all done with people's grasping relatives. And his advisors started to, you know, cast about for a foreign marriage, finally. But let's just um, wrap Jane up here. She is the most conventional of all his wives. If you look at them all, mm-hmm. she was not educated. Nope. She was subservient. She was a good household manager. Peace in the family was important to her. You know, a calm household for the king to come home to, basically, was her goal. And I was just thinking about something. I wonder if women okay. in aristocratic or royal households were more prone to dying in childbirth. And I was wondering about that because aristocratic women do not breastfeed. Oh. End of story. And that's kind of like a unreliable but typical method of at least spacing your children out. Well, aristocratic women had to get right back in the train. Right. I mean, sometimes like a month or two after they had the last one. And I'm wondering if just playing the odds, those ladies didn't die. We'll have to. Have to I don't know. That. So poor Jane was not queen for just slightly over a year. Yeah, not not too long. So let's see. We've got our mommy version of his lives is now mm-hmm. passed. Chapter four, Anne of Cleves. And now we move on to one that I think is the most entertaining Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how this played out. And this is Anne of Cleves. You know, it's time 
at last for Henry to make a dynastic marriage like other kings had to endure since mm-hmm. all of time. Think about that. He chose his own wives for attraction purposes. Even right. his first wife, he had the choice to marry her or not marry her. Mm-hmm. And he chose to marry her because he was attracted to her and thought she'd be a good wife. He has chosen these wives, and now he needed to cement alliances um, especially with the religious thing getting so crazy, he was not in so well with all the Catholic countries right now. No, no. And so he needed a Protestant wife from a Protestant house. So this is where it gets interesting. Henry sends his people out looking for the next bride. He's got to find one. They find these two sisters, Anne and her sister Amelia, and they send this guy out to paint their portraits and bring him back to them. Holbein, the court painter, was sent actually not only to Cleves, but also to other places, including Milan and including the French courts. There were a couple of candidates. I have to tell you something funny about this. What? Christina of Milan, 16-year-old girl. Yes. This is, she didn't say this, but this will reflect the rumor and the stuff that's going around. Christina of Milan is reputed to say, which of course she didn't, if I had two necks, by all means I'd marry him and give him one. That's right. Okay. No, people are not forcing their daughters on him anymore. It's well, Evelyn's death freaked no. him out, I think. Yeah. And also, Marie of Guise was said to say, I'm a big woman, but I have a little neck. But had either of them been told to marry Henry VIII, absolutely they would have done so. And those statements seem like, you know, how you put in a cartoon. Uh Uh-huh. That's what they would say. Yeah. So I don't think they're real, and I don't, aristocratic women wouldn't behave that way. No. But it's interesting that the sentiment at the time is like, don't, don't pick me. Yeah. Don't pick me. You don't want my daughter. No. Yeah. So the Cleves thing is interesting that there's two daughters fully in the mix. Mm -hmm. Please choose one of these daughters. Now, she's not educated, is really. I mean, she she doesn't know literature and music, and she doesn't speak any foreign languages, including no. um, English. <laughs> I thought of it like someone who's homeschooled in, let's say, Montana, and that's their thing, and that they're they rock at that. But then they get sent to New York City. Everything is different. She is one of the three daughters of the Duke of Cleves. Where is Cleves? Cleves is one of those patchwork of Protestant principalities in what's now Germany. Mm-hmm. It includes, his kingdom includes Gelderland. And I have to say, until I read that, I thought it was made up for the Heath Ledger movie. Remember that song? He's tall, he's tan, he comes from Gelderland, Liechtenstein. Do you remember that? <gasps> A nice tale. Yes. That's awesome. I thought... Second, I'm in awe. So when I read... references. When I read Gelderland, I started to crack up. So I felt kind of stupid, like, oh, well. Hmm. So he was shown her portraits, um, this Anne or Anna of Cleves, and Henry VIII agreed. Sight unseen, based on her portrait. And she does look very sweet in the portrait. Mm -hmm. And that's because the painter took her personality... And made it more on the portrait. He, she had some smallpox scars that were not visible in the portrait. She didn't actually physically look exactly like the portrait. And, and also, on her long journey, which was delayed, Henry VIII is basically pacing around. He's never had this unknown woman coming to marry him, and he's building up in his mind what she's going to look like. And he is accustomed to the glittering, fashionable people who take pride in their courtierness mm-hmm. and their flirtatiousness, and he's accustomed to lively women. This man has been raised by women. Even when a small boy surrounded by women mm-hmm. that were really good at 
social stuff. And here, instead, comes this parcel from the leaves. This 19-year-old, plain, quiet... Now, he's 48 at this point. You know, not the handsome Henry anymore. So he's not exactly a prize on him in and of himself. But she's quiet and just... Well, obviously doesn't speak the language and very plain. She's not fashionable. Simple. She's extremely nervous. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, princesses, etc., noble women might be brought up to go far from home. But this was really thrown in the deep end. And, and it wasn't her culture. I mean, mm-hmm. she was comfortable in her own home, but now she's sent to Mars, really. So so she's escorted with 50 ships. She's shown proper respect. Henry VIII could not wait any longer. She's on the shore. He got some dudes together and rode hell for leather to surprise her. And the disappointment on both sides was not a good thing. No. Henry VIII is quoted as saying he was marvelously astonished and abashed. And then for her part, Anne of Cleves, knowing she wasn't marrying a young handsome prince, was still astonished that some weird guy, some weird, fat, stinky guy, came up and gave her a big hug, which is, I mean, I can imagine her stiffening up and freaking out. Nobody was supposed to know it was the king. Well, she sure didn't know it was the king. He didn't look kingly at all. (laughs) And, um, yeah, so they didn't really like each other very much on first sight. No. But you couldn't really get out of it. Betrothal. Is as good as marriage about now. Yeah, there was documents signed on both parts before she headed to England. So, And he said, if I had known then what I know now, she would never have come within this kingdom. Against my will, I will put my neck in the yoke. <laughs> well, by the time not- you put your neck somewhere, because you've been putting other people's necks. Yeah. Ugh. So he was afraid of making her family mad. Uh, this was no subject of his no. that he could treat as he would. This is a person with powerful relatives. And the eyes of Europe were upon him. He needs to act kingly. So he's kind of trapped. Yeah. He, he viewed himself as the sacrificial victim of politics. Play the small violin for me. I know, really. Really tiny violin. <laughs> I mean, what about Anna yeah. Cleves? Seriously? Yeah. What about Anna Cleves yeah. talking about sacrificial victim Whoa. of politics? Again, going back to it, the women are just commodities and, Ugh. uh, yeah. Well, they're married technically on January 6th. By July of the same year, the marriage is being dissolved by Parliament. Yeah, they have not managed to consummate this marriage. And, of course, he blamed her. But we think it's a food-related problem, as in packing the food on the hips and stomach area, (laughs) as in no exercise, as in dude can't perform the functions. Yeah. But he blames her because, obviously, it's her fault. Of course, because if she was a woman, she could... Make things happen. Yeah. Whatever. So Cleves had become a less important ally. The king's eye had wandered to another young woman. This might sound familiar. She's a lady in waiting for the queen. Yes. That is like a, a shop. Yeah. Hello. Welcome to the wife shop. Your current <laughs> wife's rooms. That's right. Ladies you know, and View our merchandise. But Anna Cleves is not stupid. Uh, no. So I imagine her fear is almost overwhelming. She has no friends. Nobody's advising her. Um, but honestly, she kept it all inside. People said she was charming and fair and kind to servants. Mm-hmm. And the simple thinking of a servant, unheard of. And she always made sure to express her appreciation for the smallest thing done to her. She was nice. She was very nice. She was sweet. She gets this reputation for being clumsy, ugly, mm-hmm. ridiculous, awkward. But at the time, people said 
at the time, people who saw her, mm-hmm. people who interacted with her, said she was the sweetest, most gracious, humble, humane queen that England had ever had. And I am blaming Henry VIII and his bruised ego for her bad reputation. Oh, that's interesting. She's a Flanders mare, is what he's reported to have said when he saw her. He's calling her a horse. He's like, this woman is not a woman. This is a horse. That's what's kept on. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I said I blame him. Yeah. Yeah. It's Henry and his PR people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so he cast about for a solution (laughs) because he couldn't use the Anne Boleyn solution. No. He certainly wasn't going to be able to use the Jane Seymour Seymour. solution (laughs) because that was just never going to happen. So so he and his advisors came up with the strategy to say that she was pre-contracted to another man. And there had been no consummation, two factors that would lead toward an annulment. Um, the funny thing is, both things might actually have been true. Mm-hmm. Because she was contracted at one point to the, the Duke of Lorraine's son. And so, yes, was that ever dissolved? Well, it's not on paper. You know, right. where is that paper? Right. They never came up with it. So that actually may have been the one legitimate time he got out of a marriage. But he offered her the strangest solution ever. He turns her into... The royal sister. He gives her houses, and she's welcomed at court. She has precedence over every lady in England except a queen, if he marries mm-hmm. again, and his daughters. That's pretty high up. But she can never leave England. Right. Or she loses all that stuff. She, she happily takes it, though. I'd snap it up, too. Yeah, no kidding. She never had to consummate the marriage. She's no fool. She yeah. knows this is her way out. Yeah. that's. Remember, I had that problem with Catherine of Aragon. He offered her a thing. She probably could have made life easier for herself if she had taken mm-hmm. it. Now, think if Anne of Cleese hadn't taken this deal. Yeah, it would. Life would be very hard yeah. for her. It wouldn't. What's the point? No. Why drag it out? So she's smart to snap it up, but everyone is so confused. Like, what? He's turned his wife into a sister. What other man in the world can do this? Um, There is no other man in the world that can do that. Best outcome ever. And so she didn't have to live at court. Um, You know, Anne Boleyn said she was the most happy, but I think Anne of Cleves was the most happy. I would think so, because she didn't have to sleep with any of the Well, she had freedom. She yeah. had money. She had everything. She had no man as her boss, but the king, who was distant, who wasn't on, you know, her case all the time, she began, shockingly, to her family back home, she began to enjoy a drink. She began to take off her horrible hats mm-hmm. and her horrible pudding bag clothes and dress fashionably. She had a figure. She had a face. She was full of happiness. There was no stress. She became almost beautiful. People had written that she was a very attractive person. It's like those, do you ever meet somebody like the first time you meet them? And I mean, we all look at people. We may not judge them on their looks, but we always think something. You meet somebody and they don't really strike you physically. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, they're, you know, whatever, plain or what, you know, not they don't strike you physically, but then you get to know them and they become the most gorgeous person you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's like that shallow Hal movie. You, oh yeah. yeah. You, their insides become their outsides and you see them beautifully. I think that's what happened. 
Well, so <laughs> shallow cow. Yeah, exactly. Or, you <laughs> know, or maybe just the lack of stress. Yeah. And the new clothes. Yeah. She had a makeover. Yeah. The biggest makeover of all. <laughs> From wife to sister. That's a big makeover. That is a big makeover. She visited court after Henry got married again. I didn't want to get a little ahead of mm-hmm. myself here. So, you know, we'll talk about Catherine Howard later, but right. he's married. He's taken a fifth wife. Mm-hmm. Wife four comes back for visits as the royal sister and everybody's like rubbing their hands together. Yes, I can't wait. How this is going to go. It went perfectly. Catherine Howard and Anna Cleves played <laughs> cards together. They danced. They walked arm in arm through the gardens. Everybody was like, huh, as if she was really his sister. She was perfect. Yeah. She had the best deal. She's so shrewd. You know, um, she was friends with Mary, the daughter. They mm-hmm. were about the same age. They liked each other a lot. And she was a great aunt figure to little Elizabeth, too. There were rumors that Henry VIII might have regretted his dismissal of her later, and scurrilous ones that he took the advantage of her new appearance to consummate uh-huh. a relationship. This is court. I mean, yeah. that's what they do. They create scandal where there is none. She was the longest lived of all the wives. Yeah. You know, she survived both subsequent wives. In uh-huh. fact, she rode in the procession when Mary, Bloody Mary, and uh-huh. she turned out was crowned queen. Now, all that, she lived the longest, but she died at the age of 42, which doesn't <laughs> seem so old to me. No, me neither. <laughs> and she didn't have to go through that roulette wheel of childbirth either. Nope. Um, which would normally cut you down some. So 42 sure. does seem pretty young. Um, she had a grand lying in state, as if she were a sister, an elaborate funeral, and she is at Westminster Abbey under, curiously, a Duke of Cleves crown and uh, nothing to do with the English queen that she was. The part of her grave that references her birth and death date and the words Queen of England was um, not added until the 1970s. Chapter 5, Catherine Howard Not that long after his annulment, (laughs) shall we say, simultaneously to his marriage to number four. Yes. There's Catherine Howard. She's the daughter of this 'er ne'er-do-well nobleman of the illustrious Howard family. Uh, Lord Edmund, however, spent most of his life being Krabby Appleton about his hard life as a nobleman with nothing to do. Fleeing debt collectors, mostly, and being an ineffective government worker in France. Wow. So big claim to fame. Spoiled rotten scoundrel. Totally. But it's kind of his family business to be scoundrels because he's the younger brother of the Duke of Norfolk. Who is horrible. We've talked about him a little bit with Anne Boleyn and he pops his little head into this scenario too with Catherine Howard and he really pimps her out. He does. Catherine grew up, although she's noble, Yes. And she's related to a duke. Yes. She grew up in her... Okay, it's hard to explain the relationship, but let's just say her step-grandmother's household. Right. Okay. Her, so, her own mother died. Her own mother has a cool name, Jocasta Culpepper. That is a really cool name. So she was sent to basically this... Mm, like a large school, like a respectable dumping ground for unwanted noble children. The supervision was not all it could be. Like the private schools in the movies. Exactly. (laughs) Let's just say Catherine Howard developed early. She was attractive to men 
early. Mm-hmm. And she was attracted to men early as well. So she wasn't this prim little, nothing like Anne of Cleves. At the age of 15, her music teacher, in fact, cornered her and introduced her to the ways of the world, though technically she was still a virgin, but I think it was a technicality. Mm-hmm. There, and more seriously, at 17, another inhabitant, this time of the boys' dormitories, here she is in the girls' dormitories, um, Sneaky McSneakerson, Francis Derham, often seen and heard with Catherine Howard in the girls' dormitory, shall we say. Let's say that. With lots of witnesses. Yes. Um, they called each other husband and wife. And at this period of time, if you said, Francis Derham, I am your wife. And then Francis says, Catherine Howard, I am your husband. And then you consummated it right after. You're married. Yeah. As if you'd been married in Westminster. It was as real as real. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Until Grandmama. Gets wind of it. Oh, yeah. Grandma yeah. found out, and I guess she got so crazy, she started punching everyone that was within the punching distance, <laughs> including, you know, innocent bystanders on their way down to dinner got punched in the head by Grandma. That's I imagine, like, in my head, like, Shirley MacLaine, you know, going off the handle in terms of endearment, kind of like that. That's my mental image. I don't know what she really looked like. Catherine Howard was one of the lucky 140-so people brought to court by assorted relatives to form part of the new Queen Anne of Cleves household. Right. So once again, we have someone who's a lady-in-waiting to the Queen. (laughs) Hmm. And Catherine Howard was teeny, tiny, bird-like, bird-like, delicate and pretty, flirtatious, giddy, jolly, dancy. You know, didn't take long for the king, yoked to the brown paper parcel who didn't speak English, (laughs) to notice this new person. Not at all. And it's two weeks after the annulment, he marries her. Two weeks! (laughs) Wow. Okay. So what we have here is Party Girl married to Jabba the Hutt. Because at this point, he's almost 50. He's 300 pounds with an ulcerated leg and just oozing. I mean, he needs people to help him get up out of bed. And he's got this trophy wife, lack of a better word. Oh, jewels descended upon her. Oh, he even called her jewel of womanhood. That was reported to and a rose without a thorn. <sighs> um, you know, her innocence, her purity. Courtiers remarked that he was besotted with her. He could not give her enough stuff or enough of his ahem, attentions, mm-hmm. such as they were. Yeah, he had this idea of her, I think, that finally, here's this jewel of a woman who is, you know, no pretensions to intelligence. She's not going to argue with me. She brings happiness to my days. Also, she was awed by his position and had been raised to think that this Henry had the ear of God. And she was said to remark at one point, well, doesn't he already know what people say on confession? Referring to her husband. Like, (sighs) is this chicken or is this tuna? Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. And if anybody doesn't know to what I'm referring, let's see, what should they Google? Jessica Simpson, Chicken of the Sea. That's right. Yes. Although there's been plenty of other cases of stupidity. <laughs> but Not okay. that Jessica Simpson's stupid, but that was a stupid comment. <laughs> we all make them. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have Beckett to edit them out. <laughs> <laughs> well, when he was so ill, 
In the spring, he forbade her to see him like this. Don't look at me oh. like this. Like his normal persona was gorgeous enough. Yeah. Oh, but, like Mr. Yeah. Hot was going to be derailed here. Yeah. Okay, I think she's seen worse. But whatever. Talk about stupid. She starts hiring people to come and work for her. And she has Frances Derham to be her secretary. Her private secretary. Huh. The man that she supposedly, quote, married as a child. And you know, that might have been a bribe to keep him quiet. Maybe. Um, there is no indication, none whatsoever, that she resumed her relationship with him after mm-hmm. she was married. Not Frances Derham, anyway. The problem is, there was an attractive and quite disturbed might I say, man in the king's train that the king adored called Thomas Culpepper. Before this, he was famous for uh, attacking a cottager's wife in the woods with five of his dudes and getting away with it because the king said it was high spirits. This is not a nice man. But she's attracted to him. Well, he's cute or whatever. Mm-hmm. They met everywhere. They met in the lavatories, which must have been so fragrant and delicious. They met on <laughs> stairs. They met in locked rooms. What were they thinking? This is what? a house of glass with spies willing to throw you under the bus. They'll throw you under the bus without any information. And what? Let alone having an actual oh. actual information and she's bringing somebody else into this party too and that is Jane Parker Bolin Anne Bolin's sister-in-law is a critical point in this like she arranges meetings she watches the door um, you know she's in it deep now is it her fault or is she obeying her queen yes. we'll never know but there is a good fictional book you should read about this part called The Boleyn Inheritance by Philippa Gregory. And in that, she covers Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, and Jane Boleyn. And that's a really good combo in the way she weaves them all together. You know, like I said historical fiction, but it's interesting to read that kind of thing mm-hmm. first and then come back and read the actual biographies. So yeah. I think it's good. No, I, I agree. But all of a sudden, it all came crashing down in an unexpected way. She's been queen for 15 months and someone with ties to step-grandma's house in the country brought the news of the messing around, maybe marriage with Francis Derham. That didn't look good. No. Henry VIII is shocked. He didn't believe it. But, you know, there's too many witnesses. And she's not pregnant. No. At all. I mean, not by anybody. I thought that was kind of interesting, given the amount of activity. But she was quoted as saying she knew well how to meddle with a man and not be with child unless she would. Meaning, I know some techniques. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But um, Because she's so smart, we should believe her. <laughs> you know, maybe she's practical smart. Oh, maybe. Maybe she's smart in one area. I believe that everybody is gifted in something, and it's just a matter of finding out what you're gifted well, in. thank goodness she found her thing. I know. That's awesome. Bless her heart. So um, it didn't look good, this Durham thing. Um, pre-contracted. <gasps> she lied to the king. She lied to him. He was so mad. He... Arrested her. He put her under mm-hmm. house arrest with Jane Boleyn, who he had lost patience with. And it was Darum who outed Culpepper, which was, he was never even on the table. <laughs> to save himself, Darum said, basically, you know, she didn't even know you then when we were together, sire. But what about him, who you love so much? What? Henry called for a sword, and he was going to go take that sword and go down there and kick the door in and cut off her head right then. If I could just get off this bed. 
But he handles it. Well, kind of. He raged and he wept yeah. and he threw priceless objects across the room. And he did not care who saw him crying <laughs> with snot rolling down his face about this. He was devastated. He had been made a fool of in front of everybody. By someone he really idolized, if not mm-hmm. loved, anyway. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he never saw her again. After the Culpepper outing, there is a famous ghost story in Hampton Court, the last place they were ever in the same building at the same time, which is also dramatized in the Tudors, by the way, just if you want to see this happening, <laughs> where she broke free of her room because she's smart enough to know the last person to talk to Henry VIII is probably going to win. Right. And so it's her, because he's not good with holding fast, you know, the People can convince him to mm-hmm. stuff. Sure. So she was thinking desperately that if she could just get to him and fall at his feet and beg forgiveness, that she would be able to do so. And so there's a famous ghost who runs down the hall of Hampton Court screaming, Henry, Henry. But uh, modern recreations have proved it would be nearly impossible for her to make it that far. Spoil sports is what I say. Spoil Sorry. sports. Let's let the legend live. He never did see her again. Nope. Durham and Culpepper were both executed. Right. Catherine was moved to secure location with only six attendants. I don't have six attendants. But she still had her fine clothes, although her jewels have all been confiscated. Um, Not too much later. She was stripped of the title of queen. She's no longer queen. On the 24th of November, two days later, she was indicted as, I quote, living an abominable base and carnal life like a common harlot with diverse persons to the peril of the king and his children to be begotten by her who may have found themselves bastards. There's that word again. Bastards. That might be kind of (laughs) accurate. Well, and you know what? She didn't even know. She was not comprehending the train her life was on right now until in February they took her to the tower and reality finally set in. Finally she started to try to get away and to feel sad. Two days later she was told she was going to die and she asked for the block to practice laying her head upon it. That is a true... That's something I thought, what? Mm -hmm. That's redonkulous. Uh But that is actually historical fact. She asked, because she didn't wish to look ridiculous there at the last minute, if someone could haul that block all the way in there so she could practice the way that she would. Uh, That would be the last of my worries. (laughs) How you looked getting your head chopped off. Well, and evidently that's the last of her worries, too, because the next day she is decapitated at 7 a.m. at 20 years old, um, and her body is taken to the same place as Anne Boleyn's and very... Disregarded. And Jane Boleyn. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was also... Right after her. Yeah. The queen goes first and then... <laughs> Precedence in, in decapitation. <laughs> but you know what? Here's my question. What? There's a logic problem here. What? Okay, so, if the main reason is... Because he was even less mad about Culpepper, you know, the actual adultery, than he was yeah. about Darren, it seemed like. So if she was actually married mm-hmm. before she came to him, yes. how could she have committed adultery? Do you know what I'm saying? Because she wasn't married to the king, right? Well, publicly, I mean, she was his wife. Uh, I just I'm just saying, if there's a technicality wow, here, Wow, Becky, like, you're making my head hurt. Yes. Well, I'm just no, like, I- <laughs> Well, and obviously, yeah. we're no. not thinking that way, but I'm thinking, yeah. wait a minute, couldn't you have made the argument? This is Henry VIII. You don't make arguments, well, that's true. I guess. I guess logic doesn't fa- factor in. When he's willing to get a sword and kick down a door to get you, I yeah. guess you're kind of out of the logic game. <laughs> Chapter 6, Catherine Parr. So Henry is recorded to say, I have done with young wives, and now I'm resolved to marry a widow. 
Also, he'd made a rule that if anybody presents a candidate to him for marriage and she proves to be unchaste, the whole family is getting it. So, <laughs> so that brings that to a halt. There's not a whole lot of opportunities being presented. To well, because how are you going to be sure yeah. of that what your young relative tells you is true? No. And the whole family? Yeah. So that comes to an end. I guess the widow, which you have no illusions that she's going to be a virgin because she's a widow. Right. So, her, so there is somebody in her past, but he's dead. And he's, yeah. he's you know, legal husband, et cetera. And okay. they're older. Maybe, you know, Catherine Howard taught him that the young <laughs> chippies, really, as much as he's attracted to them, are probably not the way to go. Yeah, but she's not that old by our reckoning because she's 31 when she becomes the queen. No. So she's the eldest of three children of Sir John Parr, who was a friend of Henry VIII, and Maud Green, who had been a friend and lady-in-waiting to the first wife, Catherine of Aragon. So Catherine Parr may indeed have been named for Catherine of Aragon. What a hoot. I know. The circle turns. That's right. Such a small world. Um, Now, Mary would have been four years younger than Catherine Parr, so they were probably knew each other. Yeah, and um, the fact that, you know, anybody who was nice to Catherine of Aragon had a special place in Mary's heart. And Catherine Parr, her mother, was a bosom friend of Catherine of Aragon. Mm-hmm. And so Catherine Parr had that already in her corner. Right. That, like, oh, you're a daughter of my mother's friend. Hello. So, yes. But back to the upbringing... Of Catherine Parr, um, when she was five, her father died, and she was sent north to be raised by an uncle, um, as Mama was busy at court with Catherine right. of Aragon. She was educated there, not as well as the aforementioned Mary or her mother, Catherine of Aragon, but significantly more than ladies of her time, and she always had a love for learning and never stopped educating mm-hmm. herself mm-hmm. the whole time. So that's really good. She's very intellectual. She knows other languages. She knows French and Greek and Latin and Italian. All will help her out in this in this world. She's she's a smart and level headed. She's also got reddish another goldeny blondie reddish, and she's tall. She's five ten. Yeah, she's the tallest of his wives, and they've deduced that from the length of her coffin. In mm-hmm. case you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> So, um, she's married to husband number one when she's 17 years old, Edward Bora. And there's that, you know that song, Henry VIII, I am, I've been married to the widow next door, that thing? No, sing some more. Nope. (laughs) Um, here's the thing. This is the closest match to that song, Mm -hmm. but none of her husbands are Henry's. (laughs) And it turns out that Henry VIII is nothing more than a song from the vaudeville era. Sung by a man with a cane, dancing across a stage, huh. who made it up out of a faulty historical knowledge. Huh. So there you go. Catherine Parr is the one that people think, well, maybe it's her. It's not her. No. Nope. It has nothing to do with her. Hmm. So her first husband was her age, not an elderly man, right. as people think, but um, very, very unwell most of his life. And at 20, she was widowed with a small income, and her fate must be to get married again. So she does. And not that much longer within the year, she's married to John Neville, Lord Latimer. And he is um, older than her. Yes. But he's probably in his mid-early 40s. Yeah, he's 19 or 20 years older than Mm -hmm. her. Can I please tell you the name of his castle? Please. Which I love. Go. He's from Snape Castle. (laughs) (laughs) Snape! 
So it's his third marriage and her second, and I'm thinking, till death do us part doesn't mean a lot in this era of war and poor diet and death and childbirth. You know, it's a low commitment level, yeah. <laughs> till death do us part. It's like renting an apartment instead of buying a house. <laughs> it's like short-term contract yeah. marriage. Yeah. Okay, so to put this into a timeline... The year she married John Neville, Anne Boleyn became queen. So that's where we are. Okay. Parallel lives. Right. Anne Boleyn became queen. Right. The year she became, uh, you know, Lady Latimer. Right. Okay. And she stayed in that position for 10 years, which is a lifetime back at court. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or several lifetimes, because <laughs> Henry's going through a few wives. Now, on one hand, she's super wealthy. She has a large household, and her stepdaughter, Margaret, loved her. Um, she referred often to her tender love and bountiful goodness, but she was in a horrible political situation. Her husband was kidnapped by rebels and forced to be their mouthpiece, and they held her and her stepchildren hostage, prisoners, like collateral for mm-hmm. his return. Mm-hmm. And that must have been terrifying. So either the king is going to ding you for treason and take all your crap, including your neck, or the northern rebels are going to kill you and your family. It's like, dang. (laughs) You can't win on this scenario. But somehow they steered some kind of middle ground, but her husband never really recovered from that stress, I think. Um, They moved to London, and Catherine Parr started spending time at court with her sister, who was a lady to Catherine Howard. Because we've already gone up Catherine Howard in this timeline. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a very fast, you know, yeah. once they start going, those dominoes, they just go. They just keep they? falling. They keep falling. And yeah. so she's taking care of her increasingly old and um, decrepit husband. He's 50. I know. He's elderly. but Which um, is actually about the same age as Henry. Yeah. And it's funny because they refer to her elderly husband. I, yeah. Latimer. Yeah. Not her elderly her husband, husband, Henry. Henry, yeah. So at court, she began having feelings for Thomas Seymour, the brother of Jane Seymour. Can we get more inbred and convoluted? No. No. Um, interlocking craziness, you know. But they they both fall in love with each yes. other. It's it's a romance. So could she have money and love at last? Because if Lord Latimer dies, he's wealthy and she's a wealthy widow. But... As her husband, Lord Latimer, lay dying and the sun began to come out on her happiness, a big, huge, round, fat shadow <laughs> fell over her plans. It looks just like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> he began, yeah. Henry VIII, to give her presents. And all I can say about that is, rah, rah. So much for love with Thomas Seymour. I mean, it's love versus duty or maybe happiness versus fame. Why? Why, why, why are these ladies doing this? I'm going to go with duty. It kills me. I don't know why. After, I mean, you know, maybe number two because he's famous and he's awesome. But if you're number six and you've, you can look back easily. It's recent history. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to be able to read. No. You can just look back. Why? You're giving these women a lot more options than I think they really oh, had. Well, that's true. You know? I guess but, when the king wants to marry you, you might want to have to marry him and give the appearance of willingness, maybe. Yeah. And he was looking for someone that was just like her, right? Yeah. I mean, he was looking for a widow. She was now twice widowed. He was looking for someone a little bit older. She was, you know, in her 
30s. He was looking for someone to take care of him that could be trustworthy and smart and wasn't conniving. And calm. So those those conniving women are the ones that are the few that are still going after him because there's not a lot going after him at this point. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's going to have to look for somebody because that kind of person that he's looking for isn't going to come to him. That's true. So maybe that's why he, I don't know, speculation by us. Well, so um, what kind of queen did she become or what kind of woman um, was she? Well, always friendly and this almost ideal mix of dignity and cheer. Like she was motherly. Mm -hmm. She had a great relationship with each and every stepchild of hers. In fact, right before they got married, Mary and Elizabeth were restored to the line of succession. So the the Mm -hmm. peace was getting, you know, ironed out here. It may be due to her influence. Intelligent influence. It's not, he could, I mean, at this point, he can't see, he's got to be able to see through people, right? I think so. I think it was just genuine. Like, look, your life could be so much happier if he would just... This is the closest to a happy family life he's Mm -hmm. ever had. Right. I mean, not to say... I mean, everybody had their own household because that status. But, you know, the children came together for major holidays. Mm -hmm. And there were affectionate letters back and forth. And it was just closer to this... What I think he was maybe searching for. Yeah. Than he'd ever had. Um, (laughs) So she's pleasant. And she's very wise. And this goes to my heart. She's a lover of shoes. I was, oh, I was waiting to slip that in. I'm like, she kind of reminds me of you in a, in a number of regards, but the shoe thing, when you're shorter, 47 pairs of shoes, that would be you. That would be me. Could you imagine if you had an unlimited shoe budget? What I would need is an unlimited shoe closet. That's true. Yeah. But, wow. but anyway, she's officially the mother figure. So, In fact, he wrote to her once, give our love to all of our children. And also, notably, she had Elizabeth with her. Elizabeth, Princess Elizabeth, mm-hmm. or the Lady Elizabeth, as she is uh, still now, actually lived with her. That was really yeah. her mother. Yeah. She hadn't had one before, finally. Yeah. So she was trusted, brace yourself for this. Yes, huge. To be regent of the kingdom when the king was out of town. He was out of the country. So this is only the second wife that has had this, he's been given this responsibility. Would you give Catherine Howard the keys to anything? It would be like one of those movies. Where they have a party when that... In Berlin? No way. Uh, Yeah, as soon as they walk out the door, it's risky business, man. uh, Watch out for the... Crystal egg. Actually, you know how I imagined it? Like, he's, like, getting ready to waddle off, and she's standing at the doorway going, have fun storming the castle. <laughs> he did kind of storm the castle. He went to France to kick France. butt and take names, man. That's right. That's it right. all had to do with the baby Scottish queen, Mary, Queen of Scots, and who she was going to marry. Mm-hmm. So the counselors were obviously the real bosses, but she signed official documents, and he communicated with her about strategy, the children, matters of state. And for her part... I'm going to quote a letter, and you tell me if she's a courtier or if she's, you know, I think she's finally happy or whatever. She wrote, The want of your presence, so much beloved and desired of me, maketh me so I cannot quietly pleasure of anything until I hear from your majesty. So basically, I'm thinking of you, Henry. Everything's okay, but hurry home. Yeah. Oh, that's very nice. In addition, she was an author. He let her write books, and she did. She wrote two, and they were um, religious in nature, 
One was prayers and meditations, and another was lamentations of a sinner. Well, kind of regarded as a dirty book because it couldn't be published until after Henry was gone. Mm-hmm. It had some controversial religious uh, sentiments in it. Yes. Um, she was definitely for reform. Antonia Fraser called her the true Protestant queen, but her enemies tried to use this against her. She had, you know, radical preachers in her rooms. and His counsel suggested that she was influencing him unduly. Um, suggesting that she was improperly persuading him in religious matters. She did step mm-hmm. over the line once, though. That's okay. She lectured the king mm-hmm. about perceived errors in his theology. Unfortunately, it coincided with a bad temper on that day and also with a crackdown on heresy. <sighs> bad things, you know. Timing is everything. Rumors started to swirl that she was going to be replaced mm-hmm. because of this and that she was going to be arrested for heresy because of all this. Because, you know, Henry will listen to the last freaking person that talks to him. It's like it's like they convinced him, oh, she's this, she's this. Yeah. And he goes, oh, she is She this. must be. I'm yeah. going to write a thing. Yeah. Okay, someone, and I quote, someone, mm-hmm. who knows, I'm glad they did it, but someone dropped a copy, obviously on purpose, like more like dropped it. Oh, what is this thing I have dropped in this hallway as I knock on the door that is on in the hallway that somebody should come out and pick up in the hallway. You know, it's like Your so highness. obviously yeah. <laughs> not accidental mm-hmm. of the charges against her. Right. Do with this what you will. But here's this thing. I'm just telling you. Yep. Act now. <laughs> yep. Hurry, hurry. And so she did hurry, hurry. She went right to Henry, as she should, and basically kind of um abased herself mm-hmm. and said, well, of course she didn't know what she was talking about. She was a woman. She was taking this opportunity to learn from him. He must have misunderstood her because she's his wife. Therefore, she has to be instructed by him and his superior intellect. It was like Scarlet freaking O'Hara. Uh-huh. Don't you think? Let me insert a vomit sound here. <laughs> but you got to do what you got to do to yeah. survive. Yeah. And it did save her neck. Well, it saved her neck. She got new jewels and, and gowns out of the whole matter at the end. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. Yeah, she was smart. And he yeah. totally forgave her. And then they came to arrest her the next day. Mm-hmm. Henry's like, what are you thinking? Get away. What are you doing? This is my Back wife. Off. But it's dangerous to continue this hobby, I think, this uh, religious uh, investigation until Henry's gone. That's what I think. Because she mostly laid off, mm-hmm. as you would. And it didn't take very long. Yeah. Because Henry died only after four years of marriage. So she was the lucky one. <laughs> who survived him. So, now, she has this past. She's free. So, who does she go running to? Thomas Seymour. Yep. The man she loved. The man that she gave up to marry the king. And give, give did duty and honor and married the king. And now she can go back to marry for love. Four she, months after Henry died. <laughs> yeah, she married him in secret. Yeah. And then they decided, because there's a child king on the throne, that they're mm-hmm. going to trick him into ordering Thomas Seymour to marry her. Mm-hmm. And it takes a couple tries. Because you know, <laughs> this is so, like, bumble. Who, um, now, who do you think your um, uncle should marry? little boy. Uh-huh. And he immediately says, of course, he should marry my lady Anna of Cleves. And they're like, um, 
Mm. No. Uh, okay. Thank you. Another day. No. What do you think? And he goes, he should marry my sister Mary and change her mind about religion. She's so wrong. <laughs> and he finally got it right. You know, <laughs> he should. I know he should marry. You know, my lady mother. You're what a, a good idea. Kid. You're so yes. smart. <laughs> so <laughs> good for them. They yeah. finally got him to say the right name. Yay! <laughs> and almost immediately, huh? What? She's expecting. After all these husbands? After yeah, all these times? And she's older. She's 35. Well, I mean, even in, that's, having had a child or two after the age of 35, I can tell you they call it advanced maternal age. <laughs> so back then, it's extremely advanced maternal age. Elderly maternal age. Oh, hush. <laughs> yes. Okay, you're right. Yes. Elderly, decrepit. She's six months pregnant when her husband is um, misbehaving with young Elizabeth, who still lives with them, and Elizabeth had to be sent away. That's dirty when your wife is expecting to mess around with your house guest. Especially when your wife is this woman. Really? These men are, like, it's like the dirtbag parade, isn't it? Yeah, maybe that's another reason of this era. I'm just so confounded by it. I don't understand the men. So she spent the last months of her pregnancy decorating. I mean, there's no Pinterest, so you got to fall back on the old cloth of gold, you know, tapestries, yeah. gilded wood. Dang, you know, whatever. It's what everybody's doing. I know. But it's fabulous, and it's for this baby, mm-hmm. cousin to the king, basically. Yep. Mary Seymour was born. This one marries Seymour, and six days later, in an irony that is not to be believed, Catherine Parr dies of puerperal fever. <sighs> Just like Jane Seymour before her. Yep. She was 36. She finally had a child. She had married for love. Did everything right, and then she's still dead at 36, right after a baby's born. That's not a happy ending. What? Yeah. I'm no. sorry to say, we can't reconstruct it for you in a different way. I wish we could. She had an almost forgotten burial at her castle's chapel, and in 1782, mm-hmm. they, and she'd been moved a few times, and the coffin had been opened a few times. Like, who's this again? What? You know? <laughs> and finally, finally, in 1837, a magnificent statue was finally completed. It's a much delayed monument, but it's there. She finally gets her do and her respect so there it is divorce beheaded died divorce beheaded survived but each one's different it's not just a little rhyme no they had lives full lives and that's boiled down to a little ditty now let's see who can we follow on twitter from this particular podcast well we can follow jane seymour we can follow anna cleaves we can follow katherine howard and we can follow katherine parr all on twitter how cool is yeah. I wonder how soon after Twitter was invented, did somebody do that? I don't know. It's a little leap. Like, there's this new thing. Hey, let's go get some Twitter women and make an account. Like, if you were passionate about that person and you had a lot of information on them and you thought they were, re- maybe you teach a course in Twitter uh, wives. <laughs> You know, and you're like, okay, I'll do this on the side. It'll be fun. No, I think it's It's neat, but I just, like, it never would have, I don't think, occurred to me. No. Although, you know, in these days when Princess Beatrice's hat has its own Facebook page (laughs) and Angelina Jolie's right leg Leg. has 20,000 followers, I guess... (laughs) This is a much more useful use of Twitter. Hey, I believe so. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Um, PBS has an interesting Six Wives of Henry VIII that you can get the DVDs on Netflix. Highly recommend. And then, yeah. of course, go back to the David Starkey. Oh, oh, yes. 
Um, the monarchy. Why haven't you watched it yet? <laughs> the monarchy on Netflix now go a little bit further down the list in season uh-huh. two. So he's very personable. And in fact, his six wives of Henry VIII by Dr. David Starkey is a very well known and reliable history of these six wives. In addition, Antonia Fraser has a book with the similar title, The Wives of Henry VIII. Feel free to watch Showtime's The Tudors. I think it's interesting, especially it's- knowing a little bit more and knowing that not everything you're seeing is actually historically accurate. <laughs> and if you can handle all the flesh, which I understand they tamed down as the seasons went on. Season two might be the height. The height yeah. Of, yeah. I didn't make it all the way through season two, so I'm <laughs> sorry. There's actually another website. It's called luminarium.org. Oh, yeah. And it's got, we'll link you up. It's got lots of information. Very readable format. So that's it for this episode. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed following the careers of the six women in question. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, Please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. I thought love's game was over. Lady Luck had gone away. I laid my cards on the table, unable to play. Then I heard good fortune say, They're dealing you a new hand today. What a day. Here I go again. I hear the trumpets blow again. I'm all aglow again. Taking a chance, a chance on love. Here I slide again. About to take that ride again I'm oh so starry-eyed again Taking a chance on love I thought that cards were a frame-up I never would try But now I'm taking the game up And the ace of hearts is high Things are mending now I see I see a rainbow blending now We'll have have a happy ending now Taking a chance on love